everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. We also do a podcast called Sneaky Dragon, and formerly we did one called Completely Beatles. That's true. Uh, with the Beatles one, what we did was we went uh, album by album uh, and uh, talked about each of them. Dave as an expert, me as a rube. And that's very similar to what we're doing with this one here. <laughs> wow. Uh, so uh, I am a professional comic book writer. Uh, though I've never read the Tintin series before this podcast, I'm of course aware of it, and friends of mine love it, uh, but I've never gotten around to it, so I'm reading all these books for the very first time, and my companion in my journey is my friend, uh, <laughs> uh, David Dedrick, who is a big fan of Tintin. That's right, I'm one of your friends who love it, and uh, I've loved it ever since I first picked up. I can remember vividly pulling the the uh, album off the shelf of the library, and just the excitement to see, and I think because I'd run out of uh, Asterix books to read mm-hmm. at our other li- at our school library, and so to find this book was just like opening up a magic tre- treasure chest and now, just finding... what was your first... Uh, it was, the, I'm pretty sure it was a Red Sea Shark, because I can vividly remember just pulling it out and seeing that, the, that black cover with the sort of the circle with them in it, I guess it's supposed to be like a telescope that you're looking through right. at them, and uh, yeah, I just started reading that and absolutely loved it, and never looked back. Okay. Uh, now, uh, so one of our listeners asked if we'd be mentioning the uh, Spielberg film, uh, the yeah. Tintin film, uh, which covers this material, mm-hmm. uh, and we say to him, no. No. So there, take that. No, wait, that'd be very rude. <laughs> Put no. that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> That's right. No, here's the thing. Uh, what we're going to do is what we did, again, similar to what we did with the Beatles, which is yeah. uh, we will uh, deal with the movies. I say deal with, but we'll cover the movies yeah. uh, at the end of uh, when we're done with the books. Yes, we'll deal with all that trouble at the end of the sh- end of the books. Right. Uh, but if you didn't know, the Spielberg movie was based on this book. Uh, now you do. And what is the based, book? Well, what is the book? We haven't said the it, name of the book. Uh, it, well, I don't know if you remember what the... We, yeah. Before the shoot, the mysterious, uh, or sorry, the shooting star, we read the crab with the golden claws, which right. is also included in the Spielberg film. Ah. They did because the meeting of Captain Haddock and Tintin was kind of shoehorned in from the crab with the golden claws right. into this film. So there's elements of a few different books that were kind of because one book isn't enough to fill okay. a film. So. But I think uh, being a terrible host, I have not mentioned what book we're talking about yet today. Okay. Uh, Though I'm sure if you're looking at your device or whatever you download this on, you know it because you could read it. Unless I put the wrong name in. Oh, that's possible. Okay, let me tell you what it is. Uh, It's The Secret of the Unicorn. That's right. Right. Uh, If you're expecting actual unicorns, I am very sorry. That's not what you're going to be finding (laughs) in this book. But you will be finding a rip-roaring adventure. And uh, I'm going to... What normally happens, Dave gives a little context off the top as to... uh, what's going on and I give a little what I thought generally of the book and then we're going to go through it page by page so if you haven't read the book yet uh, now's a good time to do that if you don't mind spoilers well you could just listen to us and then go back and you know you live your own life we're not going to judge you uh, but generally what I thought of this book was uh, this was the first uh, Tintin where I thought uh, character. it felt like uh, all the characters were really full and rich and they just were completely bouncing off each other and just there was a confidence to this book yeah. that I hadn't seen in the previous ones. Yeah, we're starting to see the Tintin universe come together, which is weird to say at book 11 that we're finally starting to see what we think of as the Tintin universe. I'm sure if you lived at the time, you know, you liked Tintin and Snowy and their adventures together. Mm-hmm. And then when Captain Haddock appeared, you liked Captain Haddock, but you didn't feel like, oh, we sure were missing Captain Haddock. It's about time he showed up, you know, because he wasn't there before. You didn't have any expectations of him. But yeah, you feel like uh, with all the characters, with the Thompsons, with uh, with Haddock, and there's really only one character missing 
and he will show up next with the next album and kind of complete the family. And that was part of the reason why uh, Hergé did The Secret of the Unicorn. One of the reasons was is to uh, establish a reason for Captain Haddock's uh, place in Tintin's life. You know, you can only do so many books that have a maritime theme. So we had The Crab with the Golden Claws, mm -hmm. where we introduced Haddock. And he was supposed to be just a one-off character. He wasn't intended to come back again. But Hergé liked him so much that he brought him back for The Shooting Star. And so The Shooting Star had the maritime element in it as well as an excuse to have Captain Haddock return. And now we have to have another book that has a maritime element. But the element of merit is not really at sea at all. It's just using model ships as an excuse to, to create this sort of... Uh, this adventure around Haddock. Right, though we do have flashbacks uh, to, to to the, the sea, sea yeah, tall yeah. Ship. But it's not really involving Tintin or Haddock in the in the ocean. I mean, they're flashbacks, but it's not them that are at sea or anything, right? So, and then uh, Red Rackham's Treasure, which is the next book, will finally kind of tie up the whole storyline that Hergé had started and give them a place and Haddock a place in Tintin's life, and it kind of completes that. Um, that kind of arc that he was looking for when he started it. There was a few, you know, the, so, I mean, this is, to me, this, that's an element of it. This is also his first kind of fully-fledged, completely fantastical story that has no basis in any sort of reality at all, in the sense that, you know, when the war started, we talked about him stopping with the political satire. Although The Shooting Star, in a way, comments on you know, in an allegorical or metaphorical way about what was happening. So in a way, it was sort of timely. And The Crab with the Golden Claws also kind of continues that sort of Tintin as reporter motif with a, with a mystery involving uh, drug smuggling. And so that's kind of topical in a way, too. It's, it's you know, it's involving the characters in an adventure that's taking place in, in some sort of particular world. And the, pro the problem with both those stories for Hergé was how to have these stories take place in a world that was didn't exist anymore mm -hmm. you know because now he lived in this german occupied country in this german occupied world almost for europe and you know this world at war where everything was just in complete chaos and catastrophe and how do you have these kind of innocent adventures uh with you know with tintin as a reporter this virtuous boy reporter going out and discovering baddies and conquering them and, you know, you couldn't do one about the Germans. You know, nowadays, every film you make, you want to have Nazis as your villain. They're a very good villain. But at that time, if you did, the book wouldn't have been published. Right. It wouldn't, wouldn't have left the printing press. It probably would have involved you going to prison, actually. So that's not an option. So wh who, are your, who are your villains? You can't have... There's a huge amount of countries that you couldn't use. Not only the Axis countries could you not use as villains, but you couldn't even use Allied countries as villains because the mere mention of them would get you censored. So <clears throat> that's very limiting. So this book is kind of finally that full descent into the fantastic where it takes place in Brussels, but basically a Brussels that is 1930s. There's no mention, you don't see any German soldiers walking around in the streets at any part of the stories. Mm -hmm. So there's no sense of, of German occupation. And, you know, it has flashbacks to a, you know, to the sort of fictional pirate story. And, you know, so it's it's very interesting. It's kind of a have your cake and eat it too kind of story in that sense that it has this, you know, super adventure element. But the adventure is all from a book, and it's very interesting how he did it. The other interesting thing about it to me is that, uh, say, unlike the crab with the golden claws, which kind of annoyed me in that we it sets up this this um, uh, counterfeit operation that's operating that the Thompson are going to be investigating, and then that leads Tintin in discovering the crab with the golden claws, the label. Uh, the can, and then it, that leads to the 
onto the boat and into the drug smuggling element, and no mention is made of the counterfeit operation ever again. And it's kind of a strange hanging thing, which I don't really enjoy in literature or, or in media. So in this book, we have three different strands that are, that are all kind of working. And he successfully brings them all together in a really entertaining and interesting way. So we have, you know, the Thompson's investigating a pickpocket that's mentioned. And, you know, even though it's kind of in the background, it has a key part to play at the end of the story. Right. Then we have Tintin investigating this model ship, or three model ships, and this kind of puzzle around them. And then we have Haddock's story of his ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock. And that's interesting as well. So you have these three different stories all kind of playing off of each other until we kind of come to the almost conclusion of the story, which is basically just kind of a rest until we get to the, the next book. So it is interesting in that sense. Um, so this story was begun on June 11th, 1942, and it was finished in January 14th, 1943. So how much space uh, between the last story and this one? So with this one, there was a full month. Okay. So unlike with the shooting star, with the crowd with the golden claws going to the shooting star, there was not even a day's break. He just started the next story. What bothered him about the shooting star was not only did he get the boat wrong, and people commented on the boat being wrong, as in being unseaworthy, which bothered Hergé, because he was very detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like to be wrong in his art. You know, to him, the, what mattered was the details, of, you know, and that everything had to be right on. Also what bothered him about it was the whole uh, Blumenstein-Bullwinkle thing, because it turned a story that was supposed to be kind of a, an, sort of an innocent adventure in a way, and then it gave it an, an element of anti-Semitism, which he didn't want. I mean, it did have an anti-Semitic panel in it of these two Jewish men celebrating the end of the world because they wouldn't have to pay their debts. But that was just kind of a one-off dumb joke that you'd find people making fun of Irishmen or Jews or whatever at that time. You might have, you know, some uh, blacks playing, you know, throwing dice or whatever. You know, these sort of like common tropes that would appear in films and stuff like that. They would just be sort of there as a, as a you-know-what-we-mean kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. But what Blumenstein was in the story was totally different than what he intended. Like there was that little poke, you know, that kind of, you know... In light of what was happening, it's very tasteless, obviously. But at the time, like you said, everybody was doing it. You know, that kind of... It was common currency at the time, whether in vaudeville or in comics or wherever, in any kind of media, right. those kind of stereotypes were common, right? Like, just look at the Marx Brothers. Each of those characters were a racial st- stereotype of some sort. There was that a telling is, character, correct, yeah. the Irish character, the t- big mouth Jewish character, you know, so they, all, all of them were playing the these off of these stereotypes to create the comedy in this way. But what Blumenstein was was different, right? He, he was the villain of the piece. And so instead of it being this kind of innocent adventure, he kind of gave it this sort of sinister element of this Jewish banking conspiracy, that, all that kind of stuff that he wasn't really in, intending. And so he was kind of mad at himself about that as well. So he decided, I'm going to take a month break and I'm going to research this next story because I want it to be perfect. You know, so what he did was um, he went to... Uh, he went to a friend, and um, well, let me before we get there. Let me just talk about what was happening at this time, like Feel during free the to story. Interrupt yourself. Yeah, That's yeah, fine. I'm going to interrupt myself because um, why? Why would he go into pure fantasy? Well, here's some reasons why. At the time, and I think people could sense what was coming. But by so he's right. He started in June of 1942. Okay. By autumn of 1942, the the Germans had started to round up the Jews. So it wasn't just a case of separating them and isolating them into four different cities in Belgium. Now they began the actual final solution, right. right? So they started to round them up, and they're starting to be taken away. So people could see that. And now, you know, sad to say, throughout the world, no one was unhappy to see the Jews getting treated like this. 
you know, there's lots of ill will against them for all kinds of cultural reasons. So it's a no, shameful situation. It's a shameful situation, yeah. And now, so no one was, you know, so there was this kind of weird, you know, this is not right, you know, this is not right. They're not, you know, these people that we're not very sympathetic to are getting this sort of trouble. And, you know, people weren't really doing much about it when it started. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of like, well, that's fine. They're separated to four cities or whatever. But when this started, when you started seeing the Germans tearing families apart and taking people away and stuff like that, the feelings changed mm-hmm. quite a bit. And so not everybody, obviously, but people started to like hide, hide Jews and started helping them escape and things like that. So, you know, people started to rally at that time. And so everyone's, not everyone, but that was sort of changing how people were viewing what was happening, right, like with the, the Germans. Mindset, yeah. And so like we were talking about Hergé working for Le Soir, uh, which is where, where Tintin was being published. You know, Le Soir was run by people who were, you know, by inclination fascists. They wanted... A f- they don't want to be fascist under Germany, but they wanted to be an independent fascist nation of, mm-hmm. of, of Belgium. And so uh, Raymond de Becker, who was the editor-in-chief of Le Soir, uh, you know, there's all kinds of rival groups vying for, for supremacy as, fa- as this sort of fascist group that was going to, the Germans were going to carry into power or whatever. And uh, so he, he sided with the Rex, uh, the Rexists, who were, once again, we've talked about this guy many times, Leon de Grel, uh, and he, uh, he wrote this, I would say, crazy editorial in which he declared war on the political clergy, nonconformists, the idle and swing voters, without forgetting those parasites, the 130,000 customers of cafes, which is very odd. It seems like people are letting their own hobby horses yeah. get, a, get away from them. And my neighbor, who runs his music too loud on the weekends. But the, prop, the thing was is that you know, once this started to happen, once the, you know, once people saw the true, yeah. the true kind of what, the true face of Nazism, yeah. a lot of sympathy disappeared for yeah, these sort of parties. Something like that like editorial, that. though, when yeah. you just read there, yeah. that's clearly stupid. Yes. Right, that's stupid. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the other element of it, is when you actually uh, put these political things out, as tragic and horrific as, as they are, they're also just dumb. Yeah. Yeah, and retro in in retrospect, mm-hmm. and and hopefully at the time people thought they were dumb as well. That's that's just plain old. Yeah, well, I mean, people read Le Soir, but they didn't read it seriously. They didn't read it for the information in it. Unlike in Holland, uh, where the Nazis confiscated all the radio sets, mm-hmm. they didn't do that in Belgium for some reason. So everyone could hear the BBC. So they're getting one side from the Germans. They're getting this very German, you know, Nazi-oriented view of the war. But they could hear BBC. They could hear the British side of what was happening, you know, so there was, you know, they're getting too, and so they didn't really trust what Le Soir said. They all read it because they were fascinated by what it was. Yeah. And, you know, er, Tintin was so popular that that would kind of carried it in a way too. Uh, like people in all kinds of unfortunate situations, whether they're in prison or, you know, in the uh, prisoner war camps or whatever, they love to get Tintin. So, you know, even though this paper was kind of, uh, state tarnish in that way or stain in that way it did have good elements to the people who are reading it and also right. the fact that you could read it and go well these people who do they think they're fooling yeah. you know um, a delicious dessert to a terrible meal so I think and we kind of talked before I think if from reading what we've read of Tintin I think we can agree that Hergé was not a fascist you know he's obviously on the side of or the hasn't underdog hasn't shown signs of it yeah well, he's not, yeah. but even in his stories you know he's criticizing German yeah. expansionism he's on the side of the victim mm-hmm. you know that's what that's Tintin's place in the world is to to be 
you know, the spokesperson or the, the fighter for the victim. You mm -hmm. know, he's not joining the German army to fight for the Germans. He's not, he's never on the side of the bully. He's always on the side of the, of the victim, right? And so I think, you know, his place, his, where, he, where he was at Lesoir, he was just in a position of expedience. And I think uh, it wasn't a political act, you know. It would have political consequences, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a political act by Hergé. He wasn't making a decision as a, as a fascist to join right. Lesoir. He's making a decision as an artist to have his... His uh, his creation in the largest you know largest publication he could get you know yeah it feels like it's gone from strange bedfellows to ugly bedfellows yeah. to I got to get out of this bed yeah, yeah yeah and there was a bit of that I mean we can talk about we'll talk about it in a bit and like next next episode we can talk more about it but I mean there was feelings at Lasoir like should we be should we change sides like should we really be a, a you know a mouthpiece for the Germans but once you've got into bed with somebody like that, you really can't get off the train, you know. Just, I've changed my analogy there, sorry. Once you get onto the train with some with someone like that, you yeah, really well, can't just train, hop off. The train like, could have a bed on it. Sure, why not? Sure, but you can't just, you know. Sleeper car. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah. But again, as an intelligent person, yeah. at some point as a journalist, you have to look at what you're uh, doing and go, oh, this is, hmm, yeah, no. And, and you're right that... Uh, and you're right that we're going to, we keep saying it's over, it's over, but it's never quite over because uh, Tintin, you know, he'll always be called a reporter because that's just an easy way to describe him. And, and, and even in the very final book, even in the unfinished book yeah. of Hergé, Tintin is described as a reporter. Oh, okay. So we stop so doing that every week now. It never, it will never happen that it doesn't. But what is important is that he does, he stops being a reporter in the books. Because mm -hmm. a reporter can't work in a situation of occupy, occupation under an enemy Well, just story-wise, it was always strange that Tintin... Sa they say he's a reporter, but aside from, I think, the first issue, uh, or the first collection, he's always reported on. He's the subject of the news, but <clears throat> never never the yeah. reporter for the news. Well, it's a different tradition that we don't really have anymore, which, which maybe with the last person to do that would have been Hunter S. Thompson. But it's the person... Is the the journalist as as news? Which maker. is fine. I mean, that's you know. what happened in the first in the first story was yeah. he reported on himself and his own adventures. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson doesn't have other people writing about Hunter sure S. Thompson. I know, but that's not the only thing. Like Hunter yeah. S. Thompson is also writing about himself, yeah. whereas Tintin's you know within the books is never writing about himself. It's just well, reporter not, Tintin yeah. did this and this happened to him, and I'm a separate reporter reporting on the reporter. <laughs> well, I guess the reporter should actually report on himself, probably. Yeah. Anyway, here's more things that happened to Tintin. Well, yeah. I always like to think that, uh, and some of those are cut out, like there is a scene in, in The Secret of the Unicorn where he r reports to his editor, Ah, but it was cut out oh, for the book because okay. it didn't really suit the book. It suits in a newspaper okay. atmosphere, it suits, but it doesn't fit into the books. So there may have been other ones where Hergé cut them out because they didn't make sense in, in the, you know, the album format. Okay. So I agree with you. It is kind of weird. At the same time, you know, I kind of, I rationalize by saying he's writing a big uh, report after you know he's writing a six-part mm -hmm. article about his experiences or perhaps he wrote something that then got turned into a comic book for the colors the, Who knows? The, he writes for the the sunday supplement you know the color supplement sure that's what he's writing for all right however you need so, to justify it to make yourself happy and sleep at night um and then uh so yeah so so herge like i was saying he's so with all these kind of things that are going on around him, I think he he knew that the safest thing for him to do was sort of withdraw away from all everything and just kind of create his own sort of little bubble that he lived in. Um, you know, he knew he knew he was going to get in trouble for what he was doing, but 
he just kind of put himself into a bubble, and that's where he liked to be. So, you know, he lived. He was very odd. He wouldn't even like when there were air raids. He wouldn't go into the shelter. He would just keep working. Hmm. You know, it seemed like he just lived in this sort of bubble of it, that of assumed indestructibility. That's a curious part of his personality. Or denial. You could go that way. There too. you go. Yeah. You can call it denial. You can call it assumed <laughs> destructibility. All right. Uh, so, yeah, like so, like I was saying, Hergé knew that he couldn't keep these sea stories going, and so he started this book. But he wanted, you know, he still needed to have some sea elements in it, and so, um, you know, he uh, starts to uh, work on this story. And I think there's, a, you know, if you look back at that time, the whole pirate. That the whole pirate genre was huge. Like for us now, it seems inexplicable. No, but that at one time there was a movie every year yeah. about a pirate. It's exciting. You know? It is exciting. As for kids, exactly. yeah, yeah. Why not? It's freedom. Yeah. It's going out and uh, doing your own thing. I mean, the the big thing then too was you're going to go run away and join the circus. Sure. You know what's the other option? Well, run away and get on a pirate ship. Both yeah. sound exciting when you've got a horrible day at school. You got to go somewhere. Might as well uh, go to sea. So it's it's likely that. I think, because Hergé was a huge film fan, so I, I think it's likely that all those films kind of played into this. But also uh, Jacques van Melkebeek, who we talked about before, who worked with him at Le Soir Jeunesse, and they co-wrote two plays together. Uh, it's pro- he, pro- he was probably the one who suggested this storyline to Hergé, at least the pirate element of it, because he was a big fan of, of that sort of genre stuff. And the story itself does have, like, it does borrow elements from other fiction, like Jules Verne had a story called The Children of Captain Grant, and that story used the device of, of three scrolls left for mm. people to try to puzzle out. And Did it have the same payoff of what those three scrolls, no. without spoiling until we get to it? No. It, well, all right. And, uh, and then I think something like you know Treasure Island, all these sort of things kind of played mm-hmm. into that, right? And so, uh, so he was. So he started to plan, you know, this story based around pirates. And so he wanted to have the ship to be, act, you know, so accurate that you would just stare at it in amazement. He didn't want anyone writing in and saying, "Listen, that thing would sink the moment it left the port." Right? He didn't want that. So he started. He started researching ships from the 17th century, uh, and so looking in. He went to this uh, naval library in Paris, and started looking at ships there. Um, so. The ones he used mostly was one called Le Soleil Royale mm-hmm. and the other one called La Royale. And then there was one called Le Royale de France. And he just basically, what he borrowed from that was the jolly boat that, uh, that um, Haddock uses to escape. And then, um, and then he borrowed the unicorn figurehead from a, a British frigate that, had, that was called the, the unicorn. And so he had this like friend who was a scout and a, fr- a friend of Hergé, and he had a, a model shop. He had he sold he had the shop that sold model ships, and so um, Hergé brought him this this sketch that he'd done of the ship, and then um, Ligé, this guy named Gerard Ligé Belair, he started researching the the ships, and he came across three different unicorns. He found uh, a British frigate, a Dutch merchant ship, and then a French battleship, all called the Unicorn, and so. He also found these really detailed drawings in this book called Architecture Navalis. So they had, you know, this book that basically was just a collection of all these different shipwrights' uh, plans were collected into this book. And so he was able to give Hergé plans for this, a big French 50-gun warship. And so it would have been a third-class ship, and it would have been about 40 meters long by 11 meters wide. That would have been like the actual ship. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty big one. And so then Hergé had a 1 to 100 scale model built of the, of the unicorn. So he could use it to reference while he was doing the book. So he could just look at it and draw the elements that he wanted. And, yeah. Now, Red Rackham is uh, it's kind of a composite of different things. There was actually a pirate called John Rackham. 
or he's a, he had a nickname called Calico Jack. I guess he wore Calico. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Erge actually heard about him in a story he read in this Sunday magazine in, in Belgium. But he was an actual pirate. Uh, he, 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 I guess he served under Charles Vane, who's kind of a famous pirate. And then he stole his ship and he pirated for a while. Then he kind of probably got hot or whatever, you know, got kind of warm. So he, he retired and he went to America and New England. And then he met a woman there, a married woman named, uh, I can't remember her name now because I lost my mind. Um, not Mary Reed. Oh, Annie, Anne Bonnie. He met this woman named Anne Bonnie. And so he decided to start pirating again. So she left with him, left her husband, went with him. And, he, uh, and then there was another lady on the boat as well, this woman named Mary Reed, who actually came on disguised as a boy, like disguised as a man. Yeah. And then, uh, so it was pretty rare. Like there wasn't that many uh, pirate ships. And he's famous because, uh, John Rackham is famous because he designed the kind of the famous Jolly Roger, which was a skull with the two cross swords. That was his, his design of, of a Jolly Roger. So when you were attacked by him, you saw the, he said, that's a nice flag. Oh, we're dead. Um, but yeah, and so he, he was kind of the scourge of, of, the, uh, of uh, the Caribbean. And he, um, stole, you know, he stole a British ship and he was attacking fishing. Tr- you know, he always attacked smaller ships. He would never do what Red Rackham did in this book, which was attach, like, attack like mm-hmm. a huge a uh, 50-gun warship. He was his, you know, little tiny merchant boats and stuff like that. And finally, everyone got so sick of him that there was a, there was a uh, bounty put on his head and everyone's head on, on, on the ship. And he was hunted down by this guy named Jonathan Burnett and finally hung and gibbeted. So, yes, he didn't last for very long as a pirate, but I guess he had his fun while it lasted. Really, the pirate thing, it's actually pretty good. Pi- you know, the, the whole cowboy, our idea of cowboys, really is about a five-year period of history. Like all those movies that we see, mm-hmm. like there's so many movies, it's unbelievable. It makes it seem like it's a long time. It's really only five years. Right. Whereas piracy lasted about 80 years before it was finally given the... Right. But, uh, but of course, uh, Cowboys, the, uh, the area that looks like Cowboy Land is right next to where they make the movies. So yeah. uh, <laughs> let's do more of those. Yeah, Whereas how, what do we have to do for the pirate one? Go out into the sea. Ooh, that's no, no, I wasn't talking about movies. I just meant... I know. But this I'm in terms just, of I'm like just our... saying in, top, in terms of pop yeah. culture, there's a reason... You know, oh, those five years keep if getting you, repeated. But if you look at uh, if you look at like how many film pirate films were made, like mm-hmm. as soon as movies started, they were making pirate films like right away. Yeah. Like D. W. Griffiths, <coughs> he did like a short that was a pirate. I mean, it's just there's so many, it's unbelievable. Because I was curious how many came out, so I was I looked it up on Wikipedia, just with pirate films, and was looking at, and there's a lot, there's a lot. Um, it's so many that you can't even uh, you can't even. You can't imagine, like you can't even like pinpoint one that would be like, which one influenced this? No, they all would have, they all would have done it. So I wonder if they use the same sets over and over because you build a boat set, you might as well just put some different, uh, you know, sails up and a uh, different flag, and off you go. Now, okay, here's the f- just a little bit more about uh, Red Rackham. Hit me with it. So there's a book by C.S. Forrester called The Captain from Connecticut, which was a book he wrote attempting to give uh, both the Americans and the British would would look good in it. So it came out sometime, oh, in 1941. So it came out during the war. So it was kind of influenced by the, you know, the, their alliance during World War II. And in the book, there's this guy named La Rouge who uh, dressed kind of like Red Rackham does in the story. So I think that um, not only did Hergé get the clothing and stuff from him, but also the rouge, the red, because it's Rackham, you know, in the French, it would be Rackham de Rouge. I'm not too sure. I don't, haven't read, didn't read the French one, but um, 
Yeah, so Rackham de Rouge, so La Rouge. You can see where the name came yep. from there. And then uh, finally, there was a real 17th century pilot named Daniel Montbars, and he borrowed a lot from him as well. And uh, the final thing I want to say about Rackham, which I think is interesting, and I don't think anyone, it was not intended, obviously, because it was a real John Rackham, is that Rackham sounds so much like shark in French, which is Rakin, right? R E Q U I N. So it's interesting, like this, like if you said Rackham in French, it would. Yeah, it would just be. It a, would hint at it. it yeah, yeah, it's kind of, of a shark. Yeah. It's kind of an unintended pun, like maybe I don't know. Okay, it's interesting though. I it's think that is interesting. Well done with the interesting. Okay. All right. Now, uh, uh, one of the things you've mentioned previously is this is a the cover for this story is one you dislike. Yes, I do. do I don't what, like collage covers. Do you know what it feels like to me when I look at it? And again, this is all assumptions. And when you assume, uh, it's a good thing because it's a shortcut, and you should assume things yeah. sometimes. Uh, you can't uh, research everything to death. But when I look at this, it looks to me like. The cover was drawn without this middle image because it would be fine without the middle image. And you see a shattered bottle on the ground, but you don't see a broken bottle. You only see a full bottle, right? So it feels like there's a broken bottle that we're not seeing in front of him. And if you did that and had the broken bottle there and and Snowy running uh, away from the broken bottle and scared of uh, Captain Haddock... That's that's a fine image. I mean, that's as as simple an image I, as the as the simple images we've seen in the crowd with the golden claws yeah. and the shooting star. Uh, these all look like very basic basic images up to this point. All of the all of the covers. I like know. the shooting star cover. I mean, it's not my favorite, no, but I, I don't fine. mind it. But but it's sim- but I, it's simple. Yeah. It's someone looking at something. It's very very simple. And when you're saying collage here, it feels like he drew the Hergé drew the boat in the picture. Yeah. And then, I don't know if he said it or somebody said it, but again, I'm making the scenario up in my mm-hmm. head. They went, we need more of that boat. Yeah. Well, we can't make the picture bigger. We'll just put the boat in the front. What, just like yeah. an image of the boat? in a, What, like in a circle? Sure. sure. Boom. It's and actually, so as you say, it doesn't really it doesn't really work. Yeah, it's actually taken from inside. That image is from inside the book as well. Yeah, it's, it's, this that seems it's not even drawn really like, for, you know, a yeah. cover and then an afterthought. Boom, put that in there. Do you know what would have been better? Would have been to have a split cover. And have half of it, yeah. Him, him as him as his Sir Francis Haddock on a boat, with all the pirates around him, this big scene of attack or whatever. And then the other half is him in his apartment as Haddock with Tintin scared, and you know, in that kind of. And so you get two two of those scenes. That would have been nice, but that's not what the covers have been up to this point. I know, like the covers are all so simple yeah. that that's I think what's jarring to me about this cover is it's it's too complicated, it's too messy. Whereas the rest of them are all really basic images, even with ones that I don't like, the crab with the golden claws. Yeah. It's so basic and clear, and this one's wah ba da ba ba da ba It just looks like a picture fell on top of another picture, so. Yeah. Uh, if you like the cover, that's and I, fine. And I particularly don't like the backgroundless cover pictures. That always bothers me for some right. reason. And let me ask you this uh, before we get started. Uh, did you read this in English or French? I, as I said, I, didn't, I didn't, don't have the French one of this, so I didn't even have, I can't even find my... My original English version, it's somewhere in my house, but I had to buy this one. I didn't realize, but they changed the... The version that you've got uh, is uh, by who? The Edgemont version? This is the Edgemont version. Edgemont version. And I didn't realize that they changed the the font in it to... uh, They took away... uh, There was a guy named Neil Hislop who did all the... All the lettering for the Tintin stories, but they've taken out his lettering and replaced it with, I assume, a computer font that's Mm. more uniform that they can... And it might be more true to Hergé's... uh, writing but i kind of missed the almost uh calli- the almost kind of calligraphy of, of hislop's style okay he died earlier this month actually neil oh, hislop sorry. the p- litterer sorry to hear that i didn't know him no i uh, don't okay that's fine you can still feel sorry someone passed away even if you didn't know them okay uh 
So, all right, let's get started. And let's as usual, it. why not page one? That's a good place to start. Um, uh, one of the devices they often use is a little bit of news off the top, and here is the news. I'm just going to read it straight out, and then we're going to go through it. Uh, news in brief. An alarming rise in the number of robberies has been reported in the past few weeks. Daring pickpockets are operating in the largest stores, the cinemas, and street markets. A uh, well-meaning gang, uh, sorry, a well-organized, not well-meaning gang, that'd be nice if they were. A uh, well-organized gang is uh, believed to be at work. The police are using their best men to put a stop to this public scandal. And when you think best men... You think Thompson and Thompson. <laughs> so we're right to. off the top with them uh, searching for the uh, pickpocket in the market. Yes. And uh, we've got ourselves uh, Tintin as well there with Snowy, you know, while uh, walking through the market. It looks like Snowy's got a little bit of a flea issue or something. He's uh, scratching himself. It's a flea market. Is that the joke? I, maybe. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so some nice uh, uh, images there, like Tintin walking through the market, some people, casual. Actually, looks like a very nice market. Uh, and then he runs into Thompson and Thompson, who uh, fills them in on what he what they're up to. Also bragging about uh, finding some uh, great walking sticks. I really do think that's a joke, is that it's a flea market. Okay. Because there's no other reason for him to be scratching does it. Does that it's, translate? Like, there's when, never a, pay, a payoff. When you say a flea market in uh, in French, does it translate to I something that's... I don't know. Uh, I don't know the idiom for that. Uh, okay. Because that would only work if it, if it uh, translated as a pun, correct? Cause well... Why is a flea market it, called a flea market? Just for that, that you're getting people's junk from their homes and they weren't always uh, clean. And so that may have been a common... A common thought, not only in, in English, but also in French. It didn't necessarily have to be called a flea market, but it's a place where you could get fleas. All right. I remember so, I was buying books one time, and my cousin was very concerned that I was buying these books because they would be full of bugs. Ah. Uh, and I said, that's not true. And were you right? I don't know. They may have been. I guess time will tell. Time or time didn't tell. Time didn't. I never noticed Fair bugs enough. crawling out of them or anything. Page two. Uh, we've had the Thompsons. Uh, uh, they're going to buy these, uh, these walking sticks. Uh, Thompson reaches uh, for his wallet, and wouldn't you know it, the wallet's been stolen. <laughs> so the other Thompson reaches for his wallet after giving the guy a good scolding. Yes. Comedy, uh, comedy gold here. Reaching in, his wallet's gone as well. So we've established what the Thompsons are like, kind of bumbling uh, fellas. We've established the pickpocket is in the area, and off we go. Tintin, a uh, very friendly fellow, offers to pay for all the walking sticks. Yes. And off they go, snagging a briefcase as they leave and being accused of being thieves themselves. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, if Just before we move on, this, uh, at the bottom of the page, the, the bottom tier, in the middle of it, there's a fellow standing with a book in his hand wearing a brown suit and black bow tie. Yeah. That's Jack von Melkebeck. That's his uh, cameo, kind of a thank you for his help on, on the story of this. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. So uh, the uh, Thompsons look like they're being arrested uh, with, by people not believing that they're with Special Branch. In fact, they got uh, looks like they got beat up pretty good by either the crowd or the police, or a combination of both. And just one more thing. It looks like Van Melkebeek had hair an awful lot like mine. That's true. Yeah. If you want to cosplay as some Tintin character and want to get very obscure, yeah. that's not a bad one that's to be. That's fun for me. All right. So... Uh, uh, Snowy is complaining yet again uh, about his itching. Yes. Uh, maybe a flea market it's thing? It's a flea market. All right, fair enough. What else could it be? I don't know. It does not pay off in any way. I know it doesn't. You expect so there's something I really do later believe that that's what it is. You feel he'll scratch and then no. like rub against something and then it'll reveal a clue. That's what that it is. That would be standard operating procedure with a Tintin story, but no dice. Okay, let's get on with it. And uh, Tintin spots a model ship. Yeah. Beautiful model ship. 
uh, and uh, has a good mind to buy it for Captain Haddock. So good a mind that he's actually going to do it. Uh, selling it, for, and the gentleman is selling it for a quid. It's a yeah. pretty good deal. And it's a very old type of galliard, he says, which is, of course, he meant galleon. Uh, just a little display of ignorance on the part of the seller. So uh, Tintin offers 17 and 6. Yes, now the confusing part, trying to figure out British currency. Yeah. Pre, Let, pre-decimalization. Let's assume that uh, he's not saying 17 quid. You know, yeah, no. the, he's not going, that's not, I'm a good guy, I'm going to give yeah. you extra. No, he's a lowball, and I think for a quid. That so still apparently is a quid was made up of 20 of something. Okay. And so putting it down to 17 and 6 of something else made it a better bargain. Right. I guess. Well, uh, it doesn't really matter because what's happening right now is we're going to move the plot along a little bit. And a gentleman's coming by asking how much for the ship. He's uh, wearing a black hat. He's got a beard. Looks a little crazy. Oops. He's sweating. Everyone's yep. sweating around him when he shows up. Uh, and uh, the, the guy who's selling it, uh, being a right gentleman, mm-hmm. mentions he just uh, sold it to Tintin. Offers to buy it from Tintin. Nope. Uh, I'll pay double for it. Nope. More. Nope. And another fella comes by, reaching into his wallet, uh, and he offers money. They keep offering more money, and as we know from past stories, the worst thing you can do to Tintin is offer him money. Yes. He hates that. I guess so. He'll usually give you a bop in the snoot <laughs> uh, if you offer him money for anything. So, walking down the street, uh, you know, uh, they're offering him a fiver for it. A tenner, no. Twenty, no. Thirty, no. Look, I'm taking it to my friend. No dice. Off they go. Yeah. So, we're now at uh, Tintin's flat. Slash apartment. 26 Labrador Road. A few minutes later. Is this the last appearance of 26 Labrador Road? You would have to tell me since I haven't read any of the future issues. We'll see, I guess. Okay. Was that a question question? Or you it just was a question. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if this is the end of does, Ms. After Mrs. this point, Finch does he live on a boat? Does he live in a balloon? What happens Marlon to... Marlon He kind of comes to the center of each story. Okay. The sort of starting place for... Fair enough. Uh, so uh, Tintin has the, the uh, boat on display. He's uh, looking to show it to Captain Haddock. Thinks he'll be delighted. Uh, when there's a uh, doorbell, goes, and it's the guy with the beard. The <laughs> black beard. Crazy-looking yeah. guy. Uh, he, say, he apologizes. A little too insistent. He's a collector of model ships. He asks again if he would sell him the ship. No, no. Ask him no, and off he goes. So, but It's an interesting... Just to interrupt for a second, Please. just thinking of this as the daily comics, yeah. which is what they were. Kids like a week of negotiations. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, that's kind of exciting. I mean, it's got it's, it's humorous. These guys, you know, shadowing Tintin with their wallets with money, you know, trying to offer him to buy his boat, which he refuses to sell. That's you know not bad. But then you have this sort of weird scene of two days of of yeah him coming to ask, being told again to no, and then leaving. Uh, it's odd. And it's okay. It works okay in the story, you know, because it does help with the pacing. But it's just interesting how little Erge was paying attention to the, the it, it as a daily story, and, and I think more thinking about it as a finished book. Yeah, you know. Which, uh, since I'm reading a finished book, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that too. It's, it is really annoying to read. Uh, I mean, I enjoy Dick Tracy, and I you know I enjoy reading those. I do collect the newspaper strips, and I enjoy reading them. But it is annoying every day to have to read what happened last time in the first panel of every strip. You know, you could almost skip that strip, or skip that panel, and just read the last three. Yeah. But it feels like a real ripoff. Really you're kills only getting, the pace. Yeah, yeah. yeah, heard it, yeah this one, the pacing is very good through the through the whole story. So uh, Tindin hears a noise after he shuts the door on this guy. Goes, sees Snowy has knocked the ship off the table. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's broken. Uh, but uh, no, no, he thinks he can fix it. Doorbell rings, and who's at the door? But Captain Haddock. 
who, of course, comes in because Tinian has a surprise for him. And Haddock, of course, is, first he says, well, what a magnificent ship. Then he looks at it more closely, and he can't believe it. He, he wonders, where did he find it? Which, of course, uh, Tintin says, at the flea market. And he doesn't say that. The old street market. Why? Maybe there's no flea markets in Britain, but there are in Belgium. All right. That's why it's not translated as a flea market. Uh, Those of you, by the way, that know French, let us know if flea market yeah. does translate into French. Sure. Market de mouche. That's flies. So I don't really know. I don't know what fleas is in French. Sorry. Maybe that's for the best. Means you never run into them when you're uh, when you've been there. When I've been there, yeah, yeah. Um, so then, yes, what I was saying, Haddock is this amazed. So he drags off uh, Tintin. They go running off, and of course, I'd love to read it in knowing that that was the end of that week, so or end of that day. So then the next day, they by the way, he I comes over like, to. Uh, I always like a Tintin run cycle. Uh, I yeah. wish he was putting on his coat while doing it, but. No dice. And there's a weird segue here because it almost feels like they just ran down the hallway of the same apartment building. Yeah, it doesn't even look like a hallway. Yeah, it looks yeah. like... They're just going they, into another room. They're running, yeah, to a, yeah, as you say, to a room, opening the door, then yeah. walking inside. This is a case where the day's, a day's uh, separation between the strips would give you a sense of it being farther that they went than... You know what I mean? So yeah. if you had to wait a whole day and then you, then you open it up and they're walking into a door, you're like, oh, they must have gone a long way. It took a day to get there. Uh, so then he goes in and he shows... Uh, Tintin, a painting of a man, obviously from an earlier time, who looks remarkably like Captain Haddock. And uh, he says, <laughs> Tintin says, is that you? And he goes, no, this is my ancestor, Sir Francis, for Sir Francis Haddock. He lived in the reign of Charles II, or as Hergé originally wrote, Louis Fourteenth. That was... So why the change? Because Charles II is a British king. Ah, very good. Uh, but just take a closer look at the ship in the background. And they look at the ship, and it, it, it looks, it does, it looks remarkably like the model ship. That we saw, and even looking at it, it looks like it says the unicorn on the ship. This is our first mention of. Uh, is this our first mention of unicorn? I think so. Yeah, I believe it is. And uh, so then, Tinty decides he's going to run back to, to his check apartment. If, yeah, to check if the uh, name on it See, is the, also unicorn. The only clue we have that that Captain Haddock lives in a different building than Tintin is there's a different landlady who's sweeping in the hallway. Mm-hmm. That's our only clue. In every other way, you, w- you would have no idea that... Tin- I, guess, I guess the gray indicates sidewalk, that he's running down a sidewalk beside a building that's also the same color gray. I suppose so. And then he comes in his door, and he finds the ship is gone. His model ship has been stolen. He calls back to Haddock, tells him that his ship has been stolen, and he doesn't know where it's gone, but then he thinks, wait, maybe. And he looks at the business card. It was given to him by the collector, and it says, yeah. Ivan Ivanovich Sakharin. So he knows that Mr. Sakharin may have stolen it. He thinks so, because this guy is a rabid collector, obviously. Yeah, lives at uh, 21 Eucalyptus Avenue. So we get more running. Uh, this time, he's With wearing his coat. coat. Yeah, yeah, he's put his coat on him. this time. They go running. He finds the uh, Eucalyptus Avenue, finds him. Yeah. By the way, I like, uh, I like uh, Snowy at this point going, I've got a hunch we're off on one of our adventures again. And doesn't <laughs> seem to care for that. <laughs> Well, he's a, a real here we go again type move there from Snowy. Well, he's and already I think, tired. I mean, his tongue was hanging out when they were running back after, from leaving Captain Haddock's apartment. Well, the other weird thing about this is uh, Snowy, up until this point, I don't believe has said anything. He's just been straight out a dog. Yeah. Like he's just been scratching himself and knocking mm-hmm. things over. And uh, the, the first time he speaks is on page seven, where it's a sarcastic comment. It's a sarcastic comment, and it's a comment to us as the audience. Mm-hmm. So it's telling us it looks like it's we're on an adventure again. Yeah. Get ready, everybody. Put on your seatbelts. So then, uh, Tintin, you know, what's interesting about another interesting part about this story is how simple it is at this point. It's very 
I don't want to say pedestrian, but there's not a lot, not a lot to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a lot of running around in the streets yeah. of Belgium. Uh, a lot of let's go see this over at this place. Mm-hmm. Now let's go. Now we'll go over here. Now, now we're I'm back. gonna go. Uh, I'll go run over here. And a lot of nothing happens too. In a way, I mean, it, there's little hints, but nothing major. So we see a painting. We see the unicorns in the painting, but we don't know if it's the same boat because when he gets back, the boat is gone. So it doesn't really fulfill itself there. Right now, he goes running to Sakharin to accuse him of stealing the boat, and. Sakharin, of course, doesn't know this is what's, you know, he seems innocent. He's, he's wearing a robe. He's wearing, his, he's wearing his, his smoking jacket, as it would have been called. Okay. And, uh, and then they come into the, they go into the, well, I guess it's not a smoking jacket. It's sort of a robe, isn't it? It's pretty long. Uh, and then they go into the, um, into his room. And he, of course, he sees another, sh- he sees the unicorn in there. So Tintin naturally accuses him of stealing it. And it turns out that, no, he's had that chip for over 20 years, which is why he was so interested to see this, uh, identical ship for sale in the marketplace. Well, Tintin knows that the mast got broken when Snowy knocked yeah. it over. Uh, so if the mast is broken, then this is the same ship. Whoop! No, it's not. Uh, yeah. Egg on his face. Only there. it is, because this ship is also called the Unicorn. Or mm-hmm. it is called the Unicorn. So now, he's mystified. Yeah, apologizes to the guy. Heads off. And then we get a weird little gag scene here, mm-hmm. where he goes to phone, and then he's waiting for uh, someone using the phone booth. They're taking a long time. Yeah, like uh, 15 minutes. And then, finally, this lady comes out, and she was just hiding in there out of the rain. With her dog. With her dog, Fifi. And they go walking off, and uh, uh, Tintin gives her the lightning bolt stare. Mm-hmm. As does uh, Snowy. Not the lightning bolts, but uh, the, the doggy stink he's not, eye. He's not so happy either. He also doesn't care for a purse dog there. He doesn't like that kind of small dog problem. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, so then he make, makes this phone call. Once again, it's just uh, it's another kind of weird scene, though, because he, we have this sequence where he's waiting for this woman in the phone booth. He finally gets a phone booth. He goes inside, and the captain isn't home. So then, so then it's time for him to return back to his place because he can't go to the captain's. Right. And then he discovers that his apartment has been ransacked, terribly ransacked. Everything is spread everywhere. And uh, all the books are piled up all over the place. Some of them fall down on Snowy's head. Some of them head. fall on Snowy's head, of course. Poor Snowy. At this point, it must have concussion of some, some, oh, to some well, degree. I mean, they both have concussions. No wonder he can days. no longer talk. Yeah. So, uh, burgle twice in one day. Ugh, not bad at all. What have they taken this time? Uh, and then uh, d- can't see anything. Search the place, wonders what they were looking for. The next morning, Thompson and Thompson show up. Worse for wear. Yes. <laughs> after, the, after stealing that suitcase in the uh, market, they've, uh, <laughs> yeah, they don't look so good. Yeah. And uh, and Tintin asks, did you get your wallet back all right? Nope, afraid not, but I bought a new one this morning, and it's gone too. What what a life. Uh, great Scotland Yard, he says. The, the man we met last night on the stairs on our way here, I remember now he bumped into me. Uh, quite tall, coarse features, black hair, small black mustache, blue suit, brown hat. It's like, yep, that's him, the man from the old street market, the other man who was not the bearded man. You know, but he couldn't have stolen your wallet last night when you only bought it this morning, says Tintin. That's good logic. And uh, off they go uh, to report it at once. One of the Thompsons hitting his face right into the door. And uh, then the other one has already fallen down the stairs. <laughs> These guys clearly need some sort of glasses. They, I, I don't know exactly what's wrong with them, but I, uh, this is the first story I've been legit worried for them. <laughs> they can't seem to go more than five feet without terrible injuries. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Tintin remarks that they do have rotten luck. I don't think it's that. There's something. There's something really wrong with those guys. 
Anyway, so he uh, gets his paper sorted out and notices underneath his, uh, I guess, a dresser, uh, a cigarette. It's weird, but nope, not a cigarette at all. A little scroll of parchment. A little bit of business where Tintin smacks his head. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Those sort of things. I, I mean, I appreciate them because I enjoy, not that I enjoy people being physically injured, but I always appreciate the fact that, you know, Ergie had no, tr- no trouble showing Tintin not be perfect, you know. Right. Also, you're doing kind of a gag strip format. Yeah. You want to throw a gag in every so often. Yeah. So, yeah. makes sense. So, unwraps it, uh, unrolls the, uh, the transcript, and it says... Three brothers joined, three unicorns in company sailing in the noonday sun will speak. For tis from the light that light will dawn, and then shines forth. And then there's some numbers, 42, a degree, I guess, and then seven. And then it says the eagles cross. Yeah, but Tintin thinks this is all gibberish, and where on earth did this parchment come from? Uh, Snowy is giving it a sniff. Well, he could help. That might tell him where it is. Yeah, could be. Could do. Uh, but then... then oops, but, sorry. No, you please. Oh, no, you go ahead. I was going to go, uh, but uh, then he realizes, great snakes. Uh, I love great snakes as an expression. Uh, I, I, I've got it. The parchment must have been rolled up inside the mast of the ship. Fell out when the mast broke. It rolled under the chest. That explains something else. Whoever stole my ship knew that the parchment was hidden there. When he discovered the scroll was gone, he thought I must have found it. That's why the thief came back and searched my flat, never guessing the parchment was under the chest. And once again, uh, Snowy calls him a real Sherlock Holmes. Not the first time. I don't know. Maybe the last time. No comment. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but now it's like wondering why, why, why was he so anxious to get a hold of it? Wait, I, I know. Off he goes, and he's putting on his coat, as we all enjoy. Uh, gonna go see the captain. Off he goes. Over to Haddock's. Nope. Uh, ain't there. Uh, uh, has to talk to his landlady, uh, who mentions... No, I uh, didn't see yeah. him go out, but he hasn't answered his bell. That's that's odd. Here's our one clue that they don't live in the same building. Different landladies. The different landladies. Though we haven't seen... Sweeping in the landing. Though we have not seen Tintin's landlady in this story. Not yet. Hmm. All right, so, worried about him. Up they go. Tintin can hear something inside. Uh, he gives a little rat-a-tat-tat. The landlady gives a thump-a-thump. And, uh, no, looks like uh, we better get a locksmith to open this up. Tries it. Doesn't work. Decides, guy, it's bolted. Let's force it. Uh, in they go and are startled to see it is Haddock. Yeah. But wearing uh, his ancestor's hat, it looks like, and carrying a sword, or at least an old timey piratey sailor hat. Not only a not great, pirate, not only a great but, end you know. to that uh, for that week or that day's uh, strip, but also it makes you wonder: Was Erge planning the pages as well? Because it's a great ending to that page. It's a real page yeah. turner as well. Like agreed. I say piratey hat. It's not. It's a sailor hat. There's nothing piratey about it. Uh, in fact, he's calling the the landlady and the locksmith pirates and chases them out, calling them dogs, sea gherkins, baboons, buccaneers, filibusters, bagpipers, gallows fodder. <laughs> uh, all good swears. All good fun. Yes. Uh, so uh, Tintin asks, uh, "What's up?" Uh, points uh, again to the uh, the, the painting uh, and. Uh, and uh, Haddock says, well, last night I was thinking about the strange business of the ships. I remembered in the attic I had uh, this old sea chest that belonged to his ancestor. Open it up and it's the journal of Sir Francis Haddock. And so begins a tale. Oh, do you want me to do the tale? Sure, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, Haddock begins to, tell, uh, begins to tell Tintin about his... His uh, his uh, ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock, and you're gonna like this story because there's water, and I know you like how I Hergé do love the water. water. And 
so he starts telling it. The year 1676, the unicorn, uh, sailing under King Charles II, left Barbados in the West Indies to set sail for home with a cargo of, well, anyway, there's a good deal of rum aboard. So we can figure <laughs> out if it's leaving Barbados, it's full of rum. Yep. Because, of course, that's where rum came from then. And uh, then we look on page 15 at the top panel. Of course, this was an extra panel. So this makes me think that Hergé was probably doing the same thing he did with the shooting star, which was to lay out the strips as they appeared. And he probably left a, a blank space here because so, he figured he probably wanted a big splash panel for, for an image of the ship. Right. And you look at the ship and you look at the cover, you can see where the cover image of the ship came from, right from that page, actually. Mm-hmm. So they just took that and, and made a circle and, and plopped it on the I can see why you'd be cover. proud of that image of the ship. It's a really beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful panel. It's a great drawing, and I yeah. wish it would have just remained as a panel on the page. Yes, yeah. with that All beautiful right. Hergé water. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are two days at sea with a good stiff breeze, so they're making good headway. And suddenly they see in the distance, uh, through the telescope, a ship with the Jolly Roger up on its mast, which in this case is a skull with two crossed bones, the mm-hmm. spoke skull and crossbones. Uh, so we know that it's not really John Rackham, who of course used the skull and the two cross swords for his Jolly Roger. But uh, they see the Jolly Roger, so they know it's pirates, which is pretty nice of pirates actually to inform the people they were going to attack before they were attacked, that uh, they were going to be attacked. They weren't just going to sail on by. I'm betting there's a reason. I think it was to uh, to intimidate them. Yeah. Because you knew if, they're, if they had the Jolly Roger, it probably meant no quarter. No quarter given, no quarter expected. So it was just yeah. a fight to the death. Well, later on, they raise a different flag. So it seems like there's symbols for different things. Mm-hmm. So you know what's what. But I would I would assume when you see that, then you're, uh, you've got time to surrender if you want to. Yeah. You know, yes, you could fight back, but you didn't, you wouldn't surrender. You would fight to the, you would never surrender. If it's fly, fly, flying the Jolly Roger, I don't think you'd want to surrender because you knew that you would be dead. So it's better to die in battle than to die on your knees. Oh, it seems strange then to show that flag. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Maybe there's honor among pirates. So uh, so this pirate ship comes sailing in towards this... Uh, it's a large ship, as we'd said. It's a 50-gunner. 50, it's a 50 gunner, So it's strange, because a pirate ship is maybe... Uh, maybe has 20 guns at the most. It's not a large ship. It comes sailing in towards... The uh, the you can see actually in this they've they've changed the flag that's flying on the ship to the Union Jack, mm-hmm. and uh, well, I wonder if the Union Jack was used at that time as a as a as a flag on ships in that time in the 17th century. Well, that's somebody knows their flags. Colin Upton, do you know the answer to that question? Yeah, I'm there's some say. people who are out there who definitely know the answer to this question. <laughs> you tell us. Please answer us and put it on our uh, sneakydragon.com uh, message boards. Thanks, by the way, to people who do that. Uh, we always like hearing from people giving us historical corrections or information. Uh, that's where to find those historical corrections and information. Yeah. So, yes, the flag is flying. Uh, they fire uh, the cannons at so the now, pirate ship. Yeah, so what's interesting here is is the naval maneuvers like some, something you don't really think about because mostly when we see mostly when we think about boats we think about boats with motors we don't think about them with sails so how complicated it was to actually have a fight mm-hmm. because you'd have to have you'd have to you know alter your sails in order to maintain speed in order to change direction you'd have to do you know so uh, even like looking at the ship and has all its sails uh, unfolded it's unlikely that that would be the case because even when you're going full out, you wouldn't necessarily put all your sails out. You'd put out the ones that are most effective in, right. in that particular wind. So it just, it's very complicated. And so, and also when you're firing your cannons, you have to fire at a particular moment because 
you know, you're rocking in the water, so you could fire and all your cannon shot goes up into the air over top of the ship. Or you could be on the other end of it and all your cannon, all your fire goes into the water. So you've got to fire at the right moment as well. And so, and once you fire, then you've got to wait because now everyone has to reload. So your first shot, you know, they do a first shot, they get, they get her, you know, they pierce, they pierce the, the uh, sails and, but they don't haul, it doesn't look like they, uh, doesn't look like they hauled her, so you know. Ideally, you'd want to get some shots in low enough that it would start to sink before it got close to you. So it's already taking on water, yeah. and then it becomes more unwieldy and harder for it to maneuver. Because where it's got a leg up on on the unicorn is its size. The unicorn is this giant ship, so it's hard for it to maneuver True. and turn around. The other ship can dart in and out, you know, evade fire, and then come swooping around the back, which is what it does essentially. Now the uh, the uh, the ah uh, so yes she does put up the f- they take no prisoners the red, the pennant. red pennant yeah. yeah that means take no prisoners okay so then uh, meanwhile uh, while Haddock is, is telling this story uh, he has a glass of rum in front of him yes. uh, that he is slamming down <laughs> yes uh, worrying Tintin a little bit yeah even even Tintin is sweating it out oh although Snowy got some of the uh, the rum in the in the in the uh, Face, so he's probably Which, pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, because we know that Snowy enjoys a a, a glass yeah. of uh, whatever uh, liquor is available. So we have another sh- another image of the uh, pirate ship coming around on the uh, on the unicorn and just getting in under the cannon. So the cannon fire uh, goes off, and I'm sure there was some damage to the uh, to to the pirate ship, but still they're close enough now that they can they can. Uh, board the the unicorn and that's what they do they come on board and start to attack and so we have some great sequences now of uh well we have haddock telling the story and uh and then a great shot of the pirates boarding the ship and then what i like here is we have uh haddock this with is the pages, sword uh, 18 and yeah, 19. 18, 19 the top of page 18 is gorgeous the yeah. the, the ship uh, the ship's in the sea for yeah. sure and then what i like in this in the page 19 we have haddock with a sword raised over his head uh you know yelling at the pirates who are, of course, his imaginary pirates boarding the ship. But then we have the same pose of Sir Francis Haddock in the next panel uh, as he's shooting a pirate in the chest. The pirate looks rather surprised. And uh, it's a great action scene as people are being murdered and massacred in all kinds of exciting ways that are fun to read when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah, these are two great uh, pages. Like, I, I... I've never seen this done in comics before, the uh, describing a scene while acting it out while flashing back yeah, at the same time. Yeah. And as you say, that shot of, uh, I say shot, the panel the panel of Haddock with his fingers as a gun. Yeah. And then, and then you see his ancestor with an actual gun. Yeah. Yeah, really well done. Really well done. Great, great action. A lot, you know, all the corpses around while the fight's still going on. Uh, to the next uh, to the next page. Yeah, you can describe it. Uh, where, uh, you know, the pirate... Is saying leave uh, leave this man to me. He's talking about the Haddock's ancestor. Uh, I want it to myself. I'm ready for you, Pockmark. And the fight begins. Yeah, you like to kill me, eh, Gherkin? Scoffing braggart. Uh, we cut back to uh, the present day, uh, where a drunk Haddock is uh, acting out this fight, uh, stabbing a pillow with his sword. Uh, Tintin's trying to get out of the way, as is Snowy. Uh, pillows hitting Tintin in the face. A uh, chandelier made out of a, a steering wheel is falling down because it was cut by the yeah. present-day Haddock's made sword. F- yeah, made from a ship's wheel. Ship's yeah. wheel. Uh, and uh, knocking some sense into him where Haddock goes, yeah, that's basically what happened in the fight. You know, they, uh, they, they had that fight. Basically, you know, that's what happened to my ancestor as he hurled himself onto the pirates. A heavy block dropped on his head and he fell to the deck, stunned. Back just, to the table, back to the liquor. Just to go back up a little bit... Uh, 
of course, the reason that Sir Francis Haddock talks remarkably like uh, Captain Haddock is that's who's narrating the story. He's so he's putting, the story, yeah. yeah, he's putting the, his voice into Francis Haddock's. Uh, right. So move. the pirates were masters of the ship. They had hoisted the red pennant, and they gave no quarter. Every man, uh, Jack, walked the plank. And uh, let me just say this here. Uh, I was reading a, a separate comic uh, by a woman named Lucy Bellwood, who's a really good uh, cartoonist, who likes to do comics about tall ships mm-hmm. and her riding in tall ships. Uh, riding. Sailing. Uh, sailing in tall ships. Uh, and uh, she talked about uh, the plank and how that was a myth. Okay. Uh, basically, there's six reported instances of any ship ever having people uh, walk the plank in the history of, uh, of uh, sailing. Yeah. Uh, just because they wouldn't waste wood. On a, on a piece of wood that you would use for a plank, yeah, and then, could, oh, maybe we use it. You could just send them over to the edge. Yeah, of the here's, boat, here's yeah. what's better, she says, pushing them over the side. Yeah. So uh, if you hear walking the plank, it's great, it's dramatic, it looks good in a movie, but realistically, did not happen. Yeah. It was a myth. Well, uh, we'll always go to the pictorial rather than the... Uh, yep. And, of course, most sailors in that time couldn't swim, so uh, it was pretty much... Well, a certain death anyway. I mean, once you're yeah. in the ocean, you're, what are you gonna you're, do? you're done. Yeah. You're done. So, uh, so Tintin's asking what happened to Sir Francis. Sir Francis, uh, when he came around, he found himself securely lashed to his own mast, and he suffered terribly, uh, Tintin says, from the blow on the head? No, from thirst. Poor man, how he suffered. Talking about, of course, booze. <laughs> uh, Tintin's trying to stop Haddock at this point from drinking. He's got his hand up, he's giving subtle signs to try yeah. and knock it off, yeah. but no dice. Uh, he looked about him. The deck was scrubbed, and no trace remained of the fearful combat that had taken place. The pirates had uh, passed to and fro, but it looked the pirates were loading things onto the ship, not taking things off. Turns out that their ship was so damaged they yeah. had to like uh, load onto him. Uh, at this point, the uh, king of the pirates, or the lead pirate, whatever you say about when you're the leader of a pirate, captain, uh, captain of the pirates, uh, tells him his name, which is Red Rackham. Uh, your servant, sir says Haddock. I am Sir Francis Haddock. Uh, doesn't my name freeze your blood? Well, listen to me. Uh, you have killed uh, Diego the Dreadful, my trusty mate, said Red Rackham. Uh, more than half my crew are dead or wounded. My ship is foundering, damaged by your first attack. Then hold below the waterline as we boarded you. Uh, when some sort of dastardly gunners fired at point-blank range, she's sinking. So my men are transferring the ship uh, to this ship, the booty we captured from a Spaniard three days ago. And what booty? And then he uh, brags to him, showing him the diamonds he's got. Yeah, I like that he's dressed quite differently than when he boarded the ship. Well, it's fancy time now. Yeah, no, some time not... has passed. <laughs> there's fighting outfit, and then there's uh, bragging about your diamonds outfit. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's uh, Haddock's asking why he's showing me uh, all these uh, diamonds. You know, uh, you know. Uh, he and uh, and Red says uh, I came uh, I came to tell you that those who annoy me pay dearly for their folly. Tomorrow morning, I shall hand you over to my crew. And that flock of lambs know just how to administer a lingering death. So, this guy's a bad guy, this Red Rackham. Yeah. No two ways about it. He's a jerk. He's bragging about his diamonds. Yes. Tell him he's going to be torturing him. Uh, and Haddock keeps telling the story while drinking liquor and uh, Tintin really trying to get the booze away from him. Uh, actually uh, ta- holding his hand so he doesn't drink it and asking him to go on with his story. I'll pass it over to you now. Okay, so I don't want to. I don't want to listen to myself too much. Yeah, right. you talking all the time. Um, so now we have the ship. It's uh, anchored at, in a at heart, in a I guess in an inlet, and the uh, pirates are celebrating their victory by drinking an awful lot. They're well into their cups. Yeah, it's a good shot of the pirates yeah. drinking, wearing their wearing their jewels and other booty, and then uh, 
And then Tintin, uh, we, it's, he's right to do this. He takes the rum away from the captain. But he's wrong to put it on the floor. But he puts it on the Snowy. floor. Snowy starts to drink it. And Snowy, not only does Snowy enjoy the rum, but he's, he, uh, he's really happy because then he starts seeing two glasses. But then he looks at Tintin and the captain and he sees two of them as well. So he's really confused. Yeah, that's a nice image. Yeah. The double vision is done very well. And then, uh, so the captain tells Tintin that, the cap- that Sir Francis struggled to free himself. He's able to get a hand free of the ropes to undo them. And then he goes after Red Rackham. Yeah, this is a very exciting story. It is very exciting. So, and I like this. He goes, now, he says, with these words, he hurled himself. Tintin says, on the pirates? Like that, unarmed? He goes, no, on a bottle of rum rolling on the deck. He opened it, put it to his lips, and then Tintin interrupts him. And then he stops. This is no time for drinking, he says. <laughs> I need all my wits about me. And with that, he puts down the bottle. Captain Haddock, yes, he puts down the bottle. And seizes a cutlass, then looking towards the forecastle where the drunk, uh, where the drunken roistering still goes on, you sing and carouse, little lambs. I'm off to the magazine, which of course would have been the armory where the gunpowder, gunpowder and whatnot was kept. And then uh, he uh, sneaks down there, lights a fuse, where then he's confronted by Rackham, and then a very exciting uh, sword fight ensues. What next to the gunpowder? Next to the gunpowder, yeah. Uh, uh, meanwhile, Captain Haddock. Uh, acts it out with great excitement, getting so excited that he knocks the uh, picture picture off the wall and finds himself with his face sticking through where his his ancestor's face was. And he sobers so. up uh, Snowy by stepping on his tail. <laughs> Poor little Snowy. Yeah. Yeah. Nice action scene of him just wildly uh, flaying around with the uh, with the sword. Then he kills Red Rackham. Then relates a fuse. So yeah. he has a ship. nice uh, "May heaven forgive your wicked soul." Yeah, going back to you know what uh, Tintin used to say back sure. in the day. Yeah, yeah, but it, uh, but historically accurate, I think too. I mean, sure. it would have been more commonly said at that time. And then he sneaks into the jolly boat and sails away from the ship, which then promptly explodes. And then uh, uh, Sir Francis finds himself on an island. Now, so. Uh, or, or sorry, Haddock says, "So perish the unicorn, the stout ship commanded by Sir Francis Haddock, and all the pirates aboard her, not one escaped with his life." So then we learn that uh, on the island, Captain Captain Haddock made friends, or Sir Francis Haddock made friends with the natives, and lived there for two years until he was finally rescued by a British ship that was passing, and he was so he went off for that, and so on the last page of the manuscript of his will, he bequeathed to each of his sons. There was three of them, a model, built and rigged by himself, a model of the very ship he once blew up, rather than give to the pirate. And here's, and there's one funny detail. He tells his sons to move the mainmast slightly aft on each model. Thus, he concludes, the truth will out. And then Tintin excitedly says, that's it, Captain. Red Rackham's treasure will be ours. Yeah, great panel to end on. For that, for that week. Yeah, that exactly. Week, and yeah. also a great uh, panel to end on for that page. Yes, you're right. Because we have a sense now of... So now we have our, now we we've finished. We have our kind of our third strand of the story. Now it picks up, which is this mystery of the three boats. So now uh, we have uh, uh, Tintin decides to take Captain Haddock to visit uh, Mr. Saccharin so they can see his model of the unicorn. Right. He checks his wallet to 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 show him the uh, little bit of parchment that he has, but yeah. his wallet's been stolen, tying into the first plot line. Yeah, there you go. And so then they arrive at Saccharin's apartment. 21 Eucalyptus. Only to find 
that Sakran has been murdered. Or not murdered, actually. But that's what it looks uh, like it, a yeah. lady thinks, anyway, who's visiting or one of his, I don't know if she lives in the apartment building or what exactly. But uh, She's there to be a screaming old lady. She's there to be a screaming old lady and to inform us that he's been murdered. Only he's been chloroformed. And we discover that the mast on the, his model unicorn has been broken, meaning someone has found the second parchment. Mm-hmm. Then Thompson and Thompson show up telling everyone not to not to move and uh, they believe they've uh, found out who did this and the culprit is another great way to end that week and another great way to end this page uh, there he is both pointing at a very surprised captain haddock <laughs> uh the woman uh leaves as uh, haddock uh gets very angry at the situation she she uh sensibly runs out of the room uh haddock throws uh, the thompson's cane at him and Tom, the other Thompsons came at him. Uh, a whole bunch of swear words uh, leave his mouth, and Tintin uh, barely holds him back. Uh, yes. the, one of the Thompsons says, Please calm yourself, Captain. We only said that by way of an experiment. Uh, you see, if you really had been guilty, uh, you'd have uh, been upset, as it is. We're quite convinced of your innocence. Sweat, 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 <laughs> sweat. Okay, now we got to go look for some fingerprints. Uh, they enter the room to see that the corpse... Is no more. Yeah. That's because yeah. he was fine and he went and sat on a chair. So yeah. the corpse is coming around. At this point, uh, the uh, the man with the beard explains, A man came here last night to offer me some final engravings. I bent over to look at them. I felt a, a pad clamped over his nose. No doubt chloroform. And we have some uh, business where, with the magnifying glass uh, aimed at his posterior <laughs> and standing against a window where the sun comes in, uh, one of the Thompsons uh, burns his behind. Yes. It's a good little bit of business. Oh, yeah. I like it. Sure, why not? Yeah, when it's uh, up to the Thompsons, there's going to be some business. And, uh, yeah, burns a hole uh, right in the back of his pants. Curiously, it's not mirrored by the other one. Usually, yes. Usually the accidents are mirrored. Yes. In this case, usually it's not. One, what happens to one happens to the other. Uh, but more information comes out uh, for, about uh, this, uh, the person who did this. Uh, he was rather uh, fat, black hair, a little black mustache. He wore a blue suit, brown hat. That's him, the man from the old street market. Huh. Uh, Tintin fills them in on, uh, on who this man is and uh, mentions that he also had a wallet stolen. And uh, the, one of the Thompsons uh, says, wow, it's extraordinary how many people have their wallets uh, stolen. It's uh, not easy to air. Uh, try and take mine. So Tintin tries to, and uh, it's now on an elastic in his pocket. Yeah. Very, very clever. Yes. Childishly simple, in fact, says Tintin, with a little bit of a dig, it looks like. Uh, but for now, we must leave uh, you to your investigations, and they wish each other goodbye. Off they go. So Tintin and Captain Haddock go walking back towards Tintin's apartment, where they meet the man in the blue suit that last we saw at the Old Street Market, uh, who was trying to also buy the unicorn, or the model of the unicorn from, from Tintin, so now he tells him he'd like a word, but uh, it would be better in his flat. All right, so they go back to his flat. There should be a well-worn groove now between the captain's flat and Tintin's. Yes. Uh, as Tintin opens the door and uh, very politely lets the man go in first, a drive-by shooting occurs uh, where he is shot three times. Maybe uh, the three bullets land, maybe they do not, but there were three shots. Off they drive, uh, and it looks like the man is on his last legs. Uh, telling Tintin, take care, they'll kill you too. Who? Who are they? Tell us who. He points at some uh, birds uh, that are eating uh, seed nearby there. What? Sparrows? What do you mean? Ah, crumbs. He's fainted. We think he might be dead, but it looks like he's just fainted. The next morning, 
Uh, a news report written by Tintin? No. Uh, or maybe it has. He hasn't got any credit. Shooting drama. An unknown man was shot dead. Oh, guess he's dead. Uh, in Labrador Road uh, just before midday yesterday. As he was about to enter number 26, three shots were fired from a passing car, which had slowed down opposite him. The victim was struck by all three bullets in the region of the heart. He died without regaining consciousness. This is the most frustrating uh, story. Why is it? It is for Tintin, because every time he has a lead or <clears throat> something comes up, whatever he's looking for, it doesn't turn out, it doesn't pan out for him. So whether it's running back to see the unicorn, the model of the unicorn, and see if it does say the unicorn, which of course it's stolen, accusing Mr. Saccharin, nope, he didn't do it, calling the captain after waiting in the rain for 15 minutes, he's not home. Yeah. It's just interesting. Now, in this case, we have a man who's about to tell us something revealing, shot and dead. So once again, another dead end. Literally. So, but, not as much as it seems, uh, Haddock is feeling sorry for this fellow, but is informed by Tintin, he's not dead. They just told the paper that. Uh, so the crooks would believe they, uh, that he uh, didn't give them away. So they won't be on their guard and may get caught. Uh, back to the Thompsons, or Thompson and Thompson, uh, watching for pickpockets. And indeed, their pocket gets picked, but the elastic band does work. They spot the man, and I like the design of the man who's the, um, yeah. the pickpocket. It's, yeah. nice, it's a nice design. Uh, the man releases the wallet, smacking Thompson in the face. Uh, and the other Thompson runs after him, uh, tries to grab him, grabs his coat, no dice, runs into a telephone pole or a, just a light, light post. <laughs> and I like when he hits the lamp post uh, that a whole bunch of candles appear around his head as yeah, well as the yeah. stars. The That's next morning. not the first time we've seen that. But this, is, uh, this is something nice. Uh, you don't know that Snowy can answer a phone, but apparently he can. Uh, the He's phone a handy rings. dog. Yeah, he picks up the receiver and runs it into uh, Tintin's room. Mm -hmm. So now Tintin gets to answer the phone covered in dog drool. <laughs> True. And then we get this great cut because it's uh, he answers the phone. He says, oh, it's you. And then he says, I'll come at once. And the next has this jump cut to him already in his jacket running down the stairs. In a great hurry, he races over to uh, Haddock, or he sees Haddock in the street, grabs him. Of course, because Haddock just wanders back and forth between their two flats, because that's the only place they usually go. Yeah. Uh, grabs him on on his way. They found, uh, Thompson's have found his wallet. And uh, then we're at the, uh, I like that they're seeing the, the Thompson's. And uh, Haddock is uh, really winded from this run. Yeah. Just sweating it out, whereas yeah. it, it doesn't bother. You'd think he'd get more used to this with all the times they have to run back and forth. Uh, Haddock sits down, uh, crushing uh, Thompson's hat, uh, but uh, hits his fist through it, pops it back up, everything's fine. We don't know how far he had to run this time, though. That is true. We don't know how far the Thompsons are yeah. from. Yeah. From, uh, from Tintin's He may be place. perfectly in good, good, good shape for the run between his and, and Tintin's apartment, but not uh, to the to the Thompsons, which is yeah. on the other end of, of, of Brussels. Now it's time for a little detective work on Tintin's part. As you know, uh, one of the Thompsons grabbed the fellow's coat. Yes. Uh, notices that it looks like uh, it's, uh, it's been restitched. Uh, the coat has been to the cleaners recently. Uh, look down and see a number on it, uh, 314731. Uh, thinking, and the Thompsons go, oh, uh, to find the thief's name and address, we only got to trace the cleaners who use that mark. Uh, quick, we'll make a list of cleaners from the telephone directory and start hunting for the thief at once. And they go looking for cleaners. And then we have a wonderful uh, sequence here, I think, where uh, mm -hmm. so some days later, so some people arrive at Tintin's apartment. Now we see Mrs. Mrs. Finch, or Miss Finch, the uh, landlady. So they have this huge crate, which is they're going to be delivering to Tintin. They uh, take it upstairs. They, Tintin comes out to meet them, and he's, oh, I haven't ordered anything. He looks more carefully at it. 
They chloroform him, put him into the crate, take the crate back down, out into the street, load it into the truck. Meanwhile, Snowy's very upset. He's barking and barking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually a good plan. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Smart, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, they, yeah, load him in the train. At that uh, moment, Captain Haddock arrives. Luckily, he can catch Snowy, who who uh, I think may have fallen from the window, so by judging from his face rather than yep. jumping out. And uh, Oh, I think he jumped out. Snowy then looks... Well, he looks kind of surprised in that. I think third. he's just scared because he's jumping from a, from a height. But he's he's off after Tintin. He's yeah. a brave little dog, and he's off after Tintin. So uh, the captain catches him. I think he jumped into the captain's arms, and off he runs. Ugh, that dog's gone crazy. Look at him chasing that van. Uh, yeah. Says Haddock, uh, yeah. t- uh, who goes upstairs to see Tintin, uh, and is surprised to find he's not in his room. We cut to uh, Snowy, noble Snowy. Uh, Very noble. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, chasing, chasing uh, Tintin. And look at him sweating. Yeah, of course. Dogs like don't that. even sweat like that, and he's sweating. No, no. Well, they also don't talk, and they don't pick up telephone receivers. But and they don't. Drink <laughs> I think a whiskey. dog could pick up a telephone receiver. True, and they could also drink whiskey, but often they don't. Uh, the next morning, Tintin wakes up. He's in a bricked area with columns, looking and seeing that he's a prisoner, hearing a voice. And the voice says he's the ghost of the captain of the unicorn. That's a scary panel to end on, kids. <laughs> uh, laughing. Uh, nope, this was not the case. Uh, it was, that was just to frighten him. Uh, he goes over to this giant uh, door, a big metal door. Uh, there's a hole in the wall. And, uh, and this is the person who's kidnapped him, who wants to remain anonymous. Hmm. Yeah. Apologize, everybody, for the sirens, but people need to be rescued. And we're not going to stop them from being rescued just so we can do this podcast. So... There you are. Uh, just know someone's being helped right now, and good for them. Uh, the uh, voice through the hole says, "I want you. I want to know uh, where you've hidden the two parchments you stole from me." What well, uh, two parchments? I I only had one. Says Tintin. Okay. Well, you're gonna be like that. You know, uh, gonna. I've got su- several ways to loosen stubborn stubborn tongues. I'll give you two hours, and then uh, you'll. T- if you won't talk, you'll see what sort of man I am. So the torture will begin in two hours, unless Tintin. Uh, does something. So, cut to Snowy, uh, thinking of Tintin, walking in the rain and the snow, covered in dirty mud. Car comes by, covers him in even more mud. Uh, t- uh, he's annoyed. <laughs> he is uh, not a happy dog at Especially all. Especially that dirty mud. Yeah. Back to Tintin, looking for a way uh, through. Looks at the brick wall. Uh, maybe this beam on the ground I could use as a battering ram, but can't can hardly lift it. Looks up the ceiling. There's a ring. What to do? Eureka! Uh, figures this out. Uh, ties some sheets around the uh, wood, giant beam of wood. Uh, uses uh, his uh, strength to uh, pull pull it. Uh, what's going to happen? We don't know. Back to Snowy, uh, who spots a brook, a beautiful brook. Runs through it, gets all clean. Just couldn't be happier. Uh, hit in the face with mud yet again. <laughs> and his look towards us looks like the kind of look I have never seen before from this dog. Maybe it's just because... Uh, you know, he's got the cross eyes here. Which yeah. Normally he can't. You don't usually got... see pupils, yeah. Yeah. All right. Back to Tintin's escape plan. You know, uh, puts the beam under the ring in the ceiling, ties a small stone to the end of the string, throws it through the ring, and then pulls with all his strength uh, the beam upwards, using it as a battering ram against the wall. Very clever. Yes, it is very clever. Only problem is that they can hear it. Yeah. So we cut to... Well, uh, he, to... he was very smart earlier where he plugged the hole that he was talking through yeah. in the hopes that uh, the, the fellas or fella uh, would not hear that. Yeah. But, yes, you're right. 
uh, two characters who we have not seen before. Uh, one suffering from male pattern baldness. One looking like he's on the way to it. Uh, both and wearing also, suits. And very Boswellian. Look like uh, look like they came from uh, uh, really really uh, influenced David Boswell with his uh, Reed Fleming characters. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see David Boswell uh, draw a little tint in sometime. He'd probably mm. do a very nice job. Yeah. All right. So hearing the sound, following it. Uh, yelling into the hole, hell, Tintin! Uh, funny, he's not answering his hole in the wall. Uh, they go from the, to the cellar just uh, as Tintin breaks through the wall. And he hears music. Looks through it. Treasure. So much treasure. Yeah. Uh, but it, the music is coming from a music box that fell over and started to play. And then the chase is on. The gentlemen chase him in into the room. Think he is uh, hiding in a suit of armor. Yeah. Uh, decide to uh, shoot at it. No dice. He is not in the suit of armor. Yeah, here's, here's a little tip for everyone out there. Don't fire a weapon at a metal suit in a, in a, in a uh, stone room. Yes. Just if you don't want to get killed by yourself and your bullet that's bouncing around the room, yeah. don't fire at metal. Also, here's room. the other uh, thing. Um, you can't get into a suit of armor that fast. There's a reason these guys had squires. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not a quickety dude. No, he's that's not right. Iron Man. He can't just step into it and have it all click behind no, him. So, no, uh, damages the iron. Uh, Tintin's trying to sneak around, and uh, then a cuckoo clock goes off. Well, that's fine. I mean, they know it's a cuckoo clock. That's not uh, doing anything. Tintin. Well, I'm in luck, and as you say, uh, every time you say you're in luck in a story like this, uh, luck goes away. He trips. He uh, he uh, pulls. Uh, trips and uh, knocks over a table. A giant vase. Luckily, he catches the vase. Saved it just in time. Wait. Lid of the vase. Falls. Hits a bass drum. Boom. That's him. Off they go to uh, to get him, shooting all these uh, amazing treasures with a gun. Uh, Tintin spots an abacus, which he calls a counting frame. Gives him an idea. Smashes it against the ground. Uh, sending them flying, because they cannot walk on these uh, wooden balls. Very exciting scene. Yeah, very well done. Uh, yeah, it uh, takes the time to brag to himself what a good idea this was. Um, the uh, they fall yet again, yep. great fall. And the fall, yeah, the fall is fantastic. Yeah, one guy falls on his face, kicking his legs up, smacking the other guy in the chin. Uh, Tintin yet again, a little cocky here. Sorry to have to leave you, gentlemen. Uh, runs through the door, locks the locks them in. Uh, goes into a giant mansion above and uh, and to a phone where he sees a letter. And so, as usual, what makes this scene exciting is the forward motion of the scene. So mm-hmm. they're always going to the right during that entire sequence until uh, Tintin goes to the door, and that ca- and then the scene reverses. So we have our stopping point there in in the in the motion of that the, that sequence. Mm-hmm. It's very cl- very clever. This is a very action packed story. This this story really clicks along. It is and has very action packed. Really good physical uh, comedy and physical yeah. action. And with the pirate element to it, it really makes me. I mean, we, I suggested a little while ago when we were talking. I guess before we started the cigars of the Pharaoh, we were, we were thinking of influences, and I mentioned Wash Tubs uh, by Roy Crane and Captain Easy. Those stories, yeah. And you, I think you can really see, especially in the the ship's part of it, with and in the swashbuckling elements. Uh, the real influence of adventure strips. And it's cu- interesting that uh, when Hergé went into the newspaper when he started doing, you know, started appearing in Le Soir, how he was right then, right in the kind of the, the, the high point of, of uh, adventure stories in the newspaper strips. So, yeah, I'm naturally gravitated to that as a... As a Something I like about this too is the action. uh, The action works as action, but it also works as comedy. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Comedy drives the action. Action drives the comedy. With yeah. the exception of when it's the Thompsons, where it's just straight out slapstick. Sure. But, but in his chase uh, uh, through through the room of antiques, uh, it's all nice physical, uh, you know, action uh, mixed with comedy. So yeah. Just like before with the captain recreating his ancestors. Um, adventures it's a very dramatic story but also broken up very well with the comedy giving a nice balance so uh, Tintin picks up uh, the uh, the letter now I see what he meant the man who was shot pointing to the birds he was giving us the name of his attackers uh, M and G bird antique dealers so Tintin rings up the captain which might not be the best idea in the world. Uh, captain, not really that great on the phone. I'm very bad with uh, being on the phone. The captain is worse. Uh, as he's uh, as he's talking on the phone to the captain, who seems very confused uh, that Tintin is calling him, the butler shows up. Uh, Tintin pretends to be uh, Mr. Bird's new secretary. Uh, this uh, this ruse works until through a, a hole in the wall again. Another one of these intercoms. Uh, Nestor, who is the name of the butler, is told by his master, uh, a young ruffian's broken into the house. Stop him! Telephoning his accomplices. And uh, Tintin tries to tell uh, Captain Haddock, I'm at Marlin Spike Hall. Bring the police. What? No, not in Greece. In Marlin Spike Hall. Starling's Bite? Hello? Starling's Bite what? Marlin Spite, Captain. Marlin Spite. What? Marlin's Bike? Hello? Thundering typhoons? What's going on? So whereas I think the Thompsons both have uh, probably some uh, some eye disorders where they should get some glasses. Yeah. Maybe the captain, uh, it's time for him to get a hearing aid if possible. Uh, the butler is, uh, Nestor is trying to wrestle the phone away from Tintin this whole time while yelling, Marlin Spike Hall, Marlin Spike. It uh, looks like he has uh, almost knocked the butler out as the uh, people who own the house are running up the stairs. Hello, captain. All right, can you hear me? All right. I'm at Marlin Spike Hall. No! Marlin Spike's the name. Uh, hello? What sort of game? Hello? Oh, he's rung off as uh, the butler has now uh, put his uh, hand on the phone and cut off the connection. Uh, Tintin with no choice but to knock the butler on the head with the phone. That's torn it. The telephone's broken. The, uh, the villains coming up the stairs. Tintin on the other side of the door. The villains on the other side of the door. The door opens. <laughs> uh, by thunder, he's knocked out Nestor, they say, as they come in. Uh, Tintin hiding behind the door. They go up to see Nestor. Meanwhile, Tintin, behind the door, uh, closes the door. The guns are being fired as Tintin runs down the stairs. Little fiend will get you dead or alive. Tintin passes by a suit of armor. Will he try and get in it this time? No. No, of course not, because it takes forever to get in a suit of armor. We've told you that. But he grabs his halberd. What is a halberd, Dave? A lance, I guess. There we are. Fancy name. (laughs) Uh, So, what's he going to do with this uh, lance? Uh, Stab these people to death? That is not the Tintin way. No, it would not be. No. Uh, He has placed it on the stairwell, tripping them both, once again, them falling on their faces. Uh, That's much more peaceable. Yeah, it's much more peaceable, and also a funny bit of physical business again. Well done, Hergé. Tintin runs out. Uh, This gun has a lot of bullets in it. Yes. Uh, Many, many. Uh, Crumbs, they're after me again. Tintin runs into the trees. Uh, amongst the trees, and the uh, the villains uh, t- uh, tells his butler, "Fetch Brutus, Nestor, quickly." Uh, Brutus, whoa, very well, sir. <laughs> Brutus being a, a very large dog. Yes. So now the hunt is on. It's uh, again more exciting bu- uh, business here, running through the uh, 
the woods outside or the, the tree area outside of the mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a great jumping over the log. Yeah, image. beautiful jumping over the log. I like uh, Tintin with his head back running while the dog's after him. Yeah. Uh, he is saved when the dog's uh, leash is snagged on a tree branch. Uh, once again, Tintin making the classic hero mistake of going, what luck? Yeah. What follows saying what luck? Bad, bad luck. luck. Yeah, That's bad luck right. really falls. As so he, he runs into a tree. Yeah, in a move that would have made Thompson or Thompson proud. We get the uh, spinning stars of various colors. And then uh, he sees the dog there. Then we also get the approach of one of the bird brothers comes running towards him. And uh, Tintin trips him up with a branch, takes his gun, puts his gun on both of the br- brothers and says, time for this ends the game. Let's uh, get up. Starts to march them back. Then the dog... It uh, it breaks yeah it breaks the branch from pulling, comes running after Tintin. Tintin sees it, ducks. The dog goes jumping over him and smashes into the Bird Brothers, knocking them to the ground. Tintin ducking with the dog over his head. It looks a bit like Scooby Doo in that one panel. The dog does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because of his eyes. So uh, smashes into the Bird Brothers, and uh, everyone's got stars over their heads. Hold your dog, hold him, or it's you I'll shoot. That's nice. He wouldn't shoot uh, the dog, but he will shoot them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, all right, back to the house. They they go. Uh, Nestor is there. They're coming back, but oh dear, he's taking them prisoner. Uh, where are they going? Oh, I see. The little wretch is taking care of to put Brutus back in his kennel. Well, yeah. nice for him getting Brutus back in the kennel. Yeah, yeah. All right. You think he'd know that he was a good guy at that moment? Yeah. And now, gentlemen, we'll go to the police station. Uh, so they're passing by the window. Nestor is ready uh, with a bat or a stick uh, to hit them. Uh, misses. Oh no! It does hit Tintin. Boom! Didn't hit him hard enough. Tries to hit Tintin again, and this and this time hits one of the bird brothers. <laughs> uh, the other bird brother says, "Got you this time, my young friend. Uh, come out here, Nestor, and bring some strong cord." Uh, but just then, who did we forget in this story? Snowy appears. Yes. Uh, jumps, grabs the guy's uh, gun-holding hand. This gives Tintin a, an opportunity to punch him in the snoot, and then a bop to the chin of the other guy. And uh, Tintin and Snowy are reunited. It's Yay. really sweet. Yeah. Uh, hands up, we hear from around the corner. Great snakes. That sounds like the two Thompsons. And Captain Haddock. Uh, Haddock comes uh, with a with a bottle of uh, whiskey or rum. Uh, looks like he's about to strike Tintin. What's going on? We'll find out next page. Uh, this one's for you, sycophant, he says, throwing the bottle, uh, hitting one of the birds in the face who was just about to shoot Tintin. Yeah. Very exciting. And then we're joined by the Thompsons again, who now have Nestor under arrest and and also have found, have found their wallets, which now Thompson keeps on an incredibly thick chain in his pocket. Yes. The chain must wear weigh more than every other article of clothing he's wearing, including yeah, his hat. Yeah, he looks like Jacob together. Marley with that chain. Yeah, actually. yeah. So, um, so Tintin, though, uh, is quite nice uh, telling, telling him that, you know, Does he say uh, uh, let Nestor go? Yes, he does. Yes, he does, yeah. You know, uh, he had no idea. He was just doing his butler business. Good for him. Uh, And uh, Tintin asks, what about the pickpocket? Have you managed to lay hands on him? Not yet, but it won't be long now. We got his name from uh, the Stellar Cleaners. He's called Aristide... All right, let me give me this one. (laughs) Asterictides Silk? What would you say? I would say Aristides Silk. Sounds good. We're just about to pull him in when we were ordered to arrest the Bird Brothers, and here we are. You know, and, uh, yep, then we free uh, Nestor. Good. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, under one condition, says the, the captain, that he uh, gets him another bottle of brandy. And he's got to be three-star. 
Yeah, I like the manacles that, uh, that it's not like the thin handcuffs that we see nowadays, but they're like thick cuffs that, uh, mm. yeah. Well, maybe they came free with his wallet chain. They could be. Or maybe they're just left over from the boat. Yeah, could be. So, uh, so uh, Tintin asked the captain how he came here. Uh, well, just after your telephone call, I didn't understand a word of that. Uh, someone rang up from the hospital, uh, and they still had, uh, where they still had the little bird's man. After hovering between life and death, he'd just come around and identified his attackers, the Bird Brothers, antique dealers of Marlin Spike Hall. It was only when I heard the name that I understood what you meant on the telephone. There's no time to lose. Warned the police. Rushed here at once. And, but then we hear, wham, ow, wham, ow, run around the corner, and the Thompson and Thompson have their hats pulled down over their heads. Yes. Uh, one's escaping. He's turned the corner. Uh, Tintin says, the most dangerous of the two. He mustn't get away. They hear a car starting up, and the car races past. So he has got away. Meanwhile, Captain goes to help Thompson take his hat off. It's stuck around his head. And Thompson manages to get it off and put it into Captain's face. So I like that. A little bit of humor for that day. Yeah, why not? It's a gag strip uh, format. Why not uh, use it? And now it's time for uh, one of the famous Tintin exposition dumps. And it's a big one. All right. I'm going to turn this over to you, Dave. Oh, well, thanks a lot. I get You've to do read this book many times. <laughs> Go. So... The story is that the Bird Brothers, found, a couple of years ago, found a little model ship in, the, uh, in, a, in an attic of a house that, they, in this house that they bought, which is Marlin Spike Hall. So they were trying to restore it when they came across the parchment. So the message intrigued them, of course. They realized that it referred to a treasure and referred to three different unicorns. So the first thing to do was to use their connections to find the other models, which they started to do. So they found, they found the one, the... Uh, won an Old Street Market, which was a good find because it also put them on to the one that was owned by, by uh, Saccharin. And so then they, uh, they st- of course, stole it. They stole it from Saccharin. And then they discovered that uh, Barnaby, this man who they had hired to try and find it, who was the one who was who in the blue suit who was trying to buy it at the market, who then ended up getting shot by them because he started getting cold feet and they were afraid that he was going to betray them. So they shot him, killed him. and well, then didn't actually kill him. Oh, that's right. Well, they think they killed him. Yeah. And uh, then, then they, uh, of course, their pockets were picked. They don't know what happened for sure, but they lost the parchments. And uh, thinking Tintin had taken them, they kidnapped him. So Tintin says, I couldn't have stolen them because I didn't know they existed. But wait, perhaps it was dot, dot, dot. And meanwhile, we, in the back of, as he's thinking, we have this shot of uh, Thompson trying to pull the hat off of, of Thompson's head and excitedly gets it off only to fall backwards and knock the hat over his head. So now it's stuck again. The captain helps to pull it off. It comes off. He falls backwards, hits Nestor, carrying the bottle of three-star rum, which promptly falls onto the ground and breaks, much to the captain's dis- dismay. I think it was brandy, just to be... Oh, was it brandy? I'm sorry, brandy. To That's be right. precise. Be precise. Brandy. Be precise. Brandy is a fine girl. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, Captain, says Tintin, as soon as we return, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see Mr. Saccharin. I'm sure he took the, t- the two uh, scrolls. Uh, yep, we only got one. And, uh, oh, one, great snakes. We haven't even got that. The Bird Brothers took it, but we can get it back. Give me it back! And uh, that's impossible, uh, says the Bird Brother. Uh, Max has it in his pocket. I still can't get over how much they look like possible characters. Yeah, it is very Boswell, isn't it? <laughs> uh, ring up the police station. By the way, if uh, you have never heard of David Boswell and Reed Fleming, world's toughest milkman, uh, do yourself a, give yourself a treat and look it up. Yeah. 
Uh, ring up the police station at once. Give them the description of Max Bird and his car number. Uh, then we'll go straight back to town. Next morning, Tintin's uh, on the lookout for uh, Mr. Saccharin. Uh, rings the doorbell, but uh, he's gone away, young man, says the uh, landlady. It's it's a good job being a landlady of a building. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of good work uh, out there for landladies. Uh, a lot of sweeping. Yeah, he's gone away, young man. He won't be back for a fortnight. Ugh, that doesn't make anything the, any easier. The article said, have broom, will travel, I guess. <laughs> have broom, won't travel. Won't travel. That's right. You may have to let people in. Uh, there may be some kidnappings, some shootings. <laughs> On your doorstep. But That's aside right. from that, pretty easy work. Wear your sure. regular day clothes. Looking for a new job? Yeah. It's a clean sweep. That's right. Wear your hair in a bun every day. <laughs> uh, they go to Mr. Silk's place, uh, the Thompsons and uh, Tintin, uh, who arrests, says they're going to arrest him in the name of the law. And uh, Silk uh, says he's a retired civil servant. Uh, no, 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 no. It's this all a shocking mistake. Uh, and yet... Uh, Tintin uh, notices that he's reading uh, or putting together a, a book on uh, pickpockets or pasting together a thing on pickpockets. Well, I, I see I'm uh, not a thief, certainly, uh, but I'm a bit of a kleptomaniac. It's something uh, stronger than I am. I adore wallets, so I find one from time to time, put a label on it uh, with the owner's name, and I add it to my collection. And there's a big alphabetical collection there. Mm-hmm. Among those, uh, Max Bird's uh, wallet. And there are two pieces of the parchment in there. Yeah, uh, the uh, Thompsons uh, look under T, and uh, it's like yes. it's his bookshelf. Yes, it looks. And like let's a also say at that time, they're calling them wallets in here. They're more like billfolds. Bill they're yes. they are large, large wallets. They are yes. the size of what you would carry in a purse now, with uh, rather than carry in your pocket. We don't have pockets like that anymore. Although the way phones are growing, perhaps we will Maybe once we will. again. <laughs> yeah. Giant pockets to hold our phones. Uh, both Thompson and Thompson very pleased and surprised to find out the amount of wallets of theirs that are on that shelf. Yeah. yeah. Nice little shtick there. Yes. So, uh, the next day, uh, Tintin is uh, scowling at the two pieces of parchment. Uh, the captain is there. Red Rackham's treasure is ours. It's easy enough to say, says the captain. We've uh, found two of the scrolls, I know, but we still haven't got the third. It looks as if, ring, 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 says the phone. Hello, says Tintin. Yes, it's me. Good morning. What, you've arrested him? Uh, no, not exactly, says one of the Thompsons. But thanks to the clues we gave, they managed to catch him trying to leave the country. And he had the third piece of parchment. And, as a bit of revenge, he pulls the guy's hat down over his head. Yes. Yeah. Done. Good. Good for them. Yes. So now they have the three pieces of parchment. Po- police brutality. Right. Which look very similar, aside from the different numbers. Yeah. What to do with these? What's, a, what's, what's the thing? But then, who gets it? Well, of course, it's Tintin. The captain would have got it, but he's about to drink some uh, rum or yeah. brandy. Uh, Tintin's smacking his back and splashing the, uh, the brandy, uh, which excites Snowy, who thinks there might be some uh, extra brandy to drink. And in fact, there is soon for him. Uh, but uh, Tinsa says, uh, I've got it. The message is, uh, is right when it says that from the light, the light will dawn. Look, I put them together. And when you place the three pieces of parchment on top of each other, uh, you get coordinates. Mm-hmm. And it all makes sense. Finally. Yes. So we have 20, 37, 42N. So 42 north. Yeah. 70, a latitude 52, and a longitude. 52 west. Obviously telling us where the unicorn sank. They all do, including Snowy. A happy little dance. Yes. Uh, the captain pours himself yet another glass of brandy. Uh, now, captain, when do we leave on our treasure hall? When do we leave... Uh, mm, treasure hunt. Treasure yeah. hunt. Sorry about that. Treasure hunt. 
Uh, okay, uh, we need to find a ship. We can charter the Sirius. A trawler belonging to my friend Captain Chester. Then we need a crew. Some diamond We suits. met last uh, issue, or yeah. last in the last book. And all the right equipment for this sort of expedition. That'll take us a little time to arrange. Uh, we better say a month. Yes, in a month we could be ready to leave. And uh, then an excited Tintin says, Red Rackham's treasure will be ours, while again knocking the glass of brandy uh, all over the captain. But of course... Tintin can now see us. Yes. That always creeps me out in a story when the lead can see us. Yeah. But of course it won't be easy. And we shall certainly have our... Uh, and we shall certainly have plenty of adventures on a treasure hunt. You can read about them in Red Rackham's Treasure. And yes. And David, we will. We will. But we don't have to wait a month. Now, would that have come out a month later in the... Uh, yeah, it did actually take a month. That's why he said that. So yeah, people would know sense. that there's going to be a month. Um, but we don't have to wait a month. We have to wait uh, one week. Or yeah. if you're listening to these in a particular order where you can, maybe just listen to them whenever you want. But for you and me, Dave, it will take us a week until we uh, get to uh, get to that one, which has, I think you think, the best cover of all the uh, nope. Tintins. No, nope. it's oh. not. I do like it a lot. Okay. But it's not my favorite cover, but it, it is up there. All right. It's my third favorite cover. Okay. Is there anything else to say before we yeah, uh, wrap let's up? Just, uh, let's just talk a little bit. Because as with King Autocross Scepter... Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there actually was a scepter, as they found in, in the mid-70s, where they were doing excavations at a, uh, at a cathedral in Prague. They found King Ottokar's scepter in this cathedral. It turns out there actually were a naval family called the Haddocks. Uh, <laughs> Sir Richard Haddock, who actually was a pretty brave and uh, like a good... He became an admiral yeah. in the Navy, which... Actually, if you lived long enough, you became an admiral in the British Navy. That's how it worked. But he did live long enough and served well enough that he became an admiral in the Navy. Uh, there was another haddock who got court-martialed because uh, he was going to meet some ships somewhere. They didn't show up, so he decided to take advantage of that. Sailed down, to, I think, to Malaga, Malaga and uh, bought a bunch of goods there, which he was going to take back to England and sell at a profit. When that was discovered, it was all his you know, his proceeds were, t- were taken away from him, yeah. and he was... He was uh, Card Marshall, but he wasn't like he was a six suspended for a year or something like that. Uh, and that's uh, yeah, Captain. So that actually were actual haddocks. So it, of course, actually had no idea of that. This was discovered yeah. much later. And then I was reading. There's an interesting story that happened uh, around this time, which was Hergé uh, and Germain. They would still visit their friend Father Wallet. They would go to he was in the abbey that he was a caretaker at. He still had trouble with the idea that he was no longer. Uh, you know, just a no longer a public figure. Now he was just some priest hidden away in the corner by the church. Uh, he tried to do like this public speech about how it was time for you know this this idea of this new nation of of pan Germany and blah blah blah. You know, and the church said that's enough of that. You know, back to your hole, go hide there, please. But to Hergé and Germain would still visit him, and at this one visit, there was this German officer there who I guess was living in the area. And was visiting Father Wale as well, which seems kind of suspicious of his... But anyway, uh, and so, you know, Erge was talking to him, was very forthcoming, answered all his questions, had a very good conversation with him. He thought, and then he, you know, goes back to Brussels and about his daily work. And then he gets this call from Casterman, and they're like, well, we just had this visit from, from the occupational authorities. This aircraft came, and he had all these questions about you, and he had all this information. And wh- how would he... And then he was accompanied by this Captain Burkus turned out that's who Hergé had been talking to at Wallet. And of course, he was very, he was quite upset because to him, you know, we were talking at Father Wallet's that there should be no danger there. But yes, you could not go anywhere without, without, uh, in fact, Hergé was asked by the Gestapo to become a, 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 
uh, an informant for them, but he said no. Because he just knew so many people and had yeah. so much access to people yeah. through his fame that they wanted someone like him. But yeah, he wasn't interested in that. So, Well, good. I'm glad to hear <laughs> good that. Good for him. That would, uh, that would have been a bit of a, a black mark, uh, being part of the Gestapo or working yeah. with the Gestapo. Yeah, that's right. Gestapo, okay, yeah. let's say, I'm glad. Yes. I'm glad that did not happen. Sure. Now, uh, we've uh, we've told you our opinions on on this issue, but the but the episode is not complete without yours. So if you feel like uh, we've messed, we, we, not we messed up. If we messed up, yeah. If you feel we messed up, that's one thing. If you feel we missed something, or yeah. you've got another perspective, or something you want to say, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, the main way to contact us is through our website, which is sneakydragon.com. That's the name of our other podcast. And you will see uh, our episodes listed, and underneath there is a message board. And uh, we're happy to, or, you know, message thread. And we're always happy to hear from you on there. If you want to, if you prefer to do it on Facebook, we also have uh, Totally Tintin on Facebook. And we are Sneaky underscore Dragon on Twitter. We are also reachable uh, via the emails. That's true. By SneakyD at mm-hmm. uh, SneakyDragon.com. And don't forget, in... Uh in a tribute to Secret of the Unicorn, we also now have a message in a bottle account. So if you want to put a message in a bottle and send it to us, we will also get that as well. That's right. So we'll send do... that to sneaky underscore dragon at bottle. Yeah. Throw it into the sea. <laughs> Throw it into the sea. Uh, please don't put anything that's not biodegradable uh, yeah. into, the, into the bottle. And Dave and I will be trawling the oceans uh, looking for any of your notes and we'll be wandering by the seaside. Sure. Yep. We're expecting many of those to come. <laughs> okay. So, uh, once again, thank you so much uh, for listening. If you want to hear our other podcast, Sneaky Dragon, that is also available wherever you found this one, uh, probably on iTunes or Stitcher or some such. And if you want to listen to Completely Beatles, we completed that one about a year ago, but that is also still available at all your usual podcast downloading venues. Yay! So, uh, thank you very much from me, Ian. And from me, David. And thank you for your kind attention. Next time on the show... Uh, Red Rackham's Treasure. We'll finish this two-parter. Darn right. Bye, everyone.